Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, O'Teal Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival alongside an incredible group of musicians for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between, and scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault to learn more. That's rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. It's all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. As the co host of a jam band podcast, I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm still pretty new to the world of CBD, but Sunset Lake CBD is a great way to give it a test run. Sunset Lake is a family-owned farm in Vermont that started as a dairy supplier for Ben & Jerry's. A couple years ago, they got into growing hemp for CBD, and they've got a whole bunch of products available in their online shop at sunsetlakecbd.com. Seriously, I had no idea there were so many different ways to use CBD. Sunset Lake has tincture and salve, gummies, CBD coffee, even flour, keef, and pre-rolls if smoking is more your thing. Their hemp is 100% pesticide-free and organic, and everything is lab-tested so you know exactly what you're ingesting. In July, they're donating 4.2% of their online sales to the Drug Policy Alliance, a pretty good cause. So far, I've tried the gummies and found them very mellow after long bike rides. I also gave some of their pet tincture to my sister-in-law for her super high-strung dogs, who seem to enjoy it as well. If you too want to sample some Sunset Lake CBD products, we've got a promo code, VAULT15, that will give you 15% off anything in their store. Again, that's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code VAULT15. Hey folks, just like Bobby hates rain, I hate my lawn. I've got patchy grass, tons of weeds, and I hate spending precious free time taking care of it. So I'm very interested in Sinlon. Sinlon is the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass in North America. They make safe, clean, environmentally friendly turf. No watering, no pesticides, no mowing. Their artificial grass is made from bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane and it's made right here in the USA. Sinlon sent us a couple samples, which is a funny thing to get in the mail, but it looks and feels crazy realistic, and the kids love jumping on it. 
I can see how it'd work great for a lawn, a playground, a patio, or anywhere else you might need some low-maintenance greenery. For instance, right now, Sinlon is running a contest to win their Dave Pell's Greenmaker Putting Green System. So you can enjoy pro-quality putting in your home or office. Go to Sinlon, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N, dot com slash 36FTV, check out their products, and enter the contest by August 31st. That's sinlon.com slash 36FTV. So this is an interesting Dick's Picks for me because... I actually know 1981 fairly well, even though this is not a celebrated year in the band's history, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, not at all. And yeah. the reason I know 1981 like relatively well is that like a couple years ago, I decided to do my first virtual Grateful Dead tour, like where I would follow every show on a particular run. Sure. And for whatever reason, I picked spring of 1981. And which is a very weird choice. I think I picked it because it was like I couldn't find anyone writing about it, and it seemed like no one really had any opinions about this this period. So I thought, well, okay. this will be kind of like an unexplored, you know, corner of the of the Grateful Dead history that I can get into. And I also felt like if I were alive, you know in this time that this would be like the incarnation of the dead that I probably would have seen you know it's like we all want to fantasize about seeing the dead in the 70s but like it's more likely that you know I just imagine myself getting into the dead at a time like like that like no one else cared about them so it, sure. it, it almost felt like more realistic for me to see them in 1981 if, <laughs> if that makes any sense um like how far were you into listening to the dead like when you did that? I was like pretty I mean, I was enough into the dead to like want to do something like that. You know, I think that okay, I think yeah. I think that's definitely something that like a lot of dead fans do, and it, it I think it marks like a certain threshold of nerdiness if you like want to listen to like, every show of a tour, especially if it's like not a very well known tour or you know all that respected era. But I'm just curious, like for you, because I know that you've done a fair amount of virtual touring. And we're kind of doing that with Dick's Picks here, but I mean, this is different because it's curated. It's not listening to every show in a particular year or, you know, era or whatever. Yeah, and it's all jumbled up. Yeah. Obviously not not chronological at all, which is good. Yeah, but I uh, think it makes it easier to go out of order. Absolutely. Because, like, when I was doing the virtual tour, I mean, I I hung in for, like, a little over a month before I had to bail. Because I just got bored listening yeah. to that many shows especially like 81 i mean and we're going to talk about that in this in, in this episode like they weren't playing a whole lot of different set lists at this time it was like pretty stagnant um but like what's your experience been like i mean do you like doing that i mean like you've written a lot about right. doing that i also do it yeah i guess i do it as sort of a running writing projects uh with fish uh i do i can plug my fish newsletter where i write an essay for every show on its 25th anniversary so it's very good i've done every show since the start of 1993 through summer 95 wow and and not you know continuously uh i I take a lot of breaks 
Uh, now I have to do it like fairly uh, in order, or you know, on, and almost as frequently as the shows happened, just to keep up with this crazy anniversary deadline I've set for myself. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I get a lot out of it. I mean, it's yeah, I agree. It's definitely a way different listening experience than something like Dick's Picks, where you're just jumping from highlight to highlight. Uh, never mind not doing it in order. Uh, that doing every show of a tour is really all about, you know, looking hard for those little differences and those little sort of micro steps in evolution of the band. Uh, so like following a song's debut through its, you know, first 10 versions and hearing how the band fleshed it out over a month or two or listening to every version of a tweezer or a dark star from a particular tour and uh, you know, being able to hear what was the same, what were the sort of crutches that they relied on uh, consistently with those uh, ver- those songs from night to night, from version to version, and you know what was actually different and new and fresh territory. So, yeah, I agree. It's sort of like advanced level jam band listening to do it that way, but uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's like it always amazes me that you can even do that because uh, since I started in the days of tape trading where you were lucky if you got, you know, two or three shows from one tour, uh, to be able to just sit down and go through the whole run of, you know, two, three months tour is, is incredible. Yeah. I think for all the reasons that you just stated, that's why it's fun to do. I mean, you really do get into the minutia of the band and you feel like you understand their evolution during a particular period of time, you know, just cause you're going step by step. I also feel like for me, it was almost like a rock and roll version of fantasy baseball, or or maybe mm-hmm. like, did you ever play Appa? You know that card, oh, yeah. that card game. You know, like it's like I'm gonna play, I'm gonna be the 1985 St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, the dice game. Yeah, yeah I, I just bu- I bought a set for my dad a couple of years ago because he played it as a kid, and yeah, we still play every once in a while. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that, like when I was doing my virtual tour, it reminded me of that because I felt like in a way I was sort of pretending. Like I said before, like that I was alive in 1981 and I was on the road with, with sure. the dead. So like along with, as you said, getting to hear the band night after night and to hear even in 1981, again, where there wasn't a lot of evolution happening necessarily. But even then you can hear variations every night and you, you can tell easier like what's an off night and like what's a good night. Um, but I also just really got into the stuff around the band, you know, which again, like that's something we do on this show, but like just imagining them playing in Cleveland, like in March of 1981. And like, what was that like? Like, what was Jerry yeah. Garcia doing in Cleveland in you know, the spring <laughs> of 1981? And what horror movie did he see on his day? <laughs> exactly. And like, you know, sometimes you get to hear like the audience a little bit, especially on the audience tapes. And, mm-hmm. and you get the documentary aspect of that as well. Like hearing just like deadheads in the audience, you know, going to see them uh, in the early 80s. And, and just imagining again, like what that was like. And yeah, there's that documentary aspect of it, which I think is big for me anyway, when uh, you're listening to these live tapes and, and, and you're going through it methodically like we're doing in this in this series. Um that's always really fascinating to me. Like, I, I, oh, th- I mean, it's, it's the closest I'm going to get to seeing the dead in 1981. Right. The other thing you get too, which you don't get just from cherry picking the highlights, is you get sort of the annoyances <laughs> of being on tour as well. Right. Like, if you know, for the dead, like if they open every show with Alabama Getaway, <laughs> you get pretty sick of Alabama Getaway, and you start 
doing the jaded fan thing of groaning when you uh, hear those opening notes. So it's, you know, it, it, it captures the highs and the lows of the tour very well because, uh, you know, of course, being on tour is amazing and I would trade anything to uh, see some live music right now. Um, but, like, there are, you know, things that keep popping up when you're on tour for a long time that you get a little sick of and that's you know part of the emotional spectrum as well i guess i think that was when i implemented my own bathroom break rule for dead recordings when i was on that tour because i was like no way in hell i'm gonna listen to little red rooster every night you know (laughs) like night night after night although you know it's funny i don't want to give away too much we have a little red rooster in this episode in dick's picks 13 and uh I know I had a, a surprising reaction to it. I'm not sure how you reacted to it, but I didn't react to it in the way that I thought I would. So I'll, I'll just yeah. leave it at that. Little boom! That that's the teaser. <laughs> we're, te- yeah. we're teasing Little Red Rooster in this episode. <laughs> I don't know what that says about this dick's picks, but um, by the way, this is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. And uh, let's introduce ourselves again. We did that, I think, a, a little bit early. I, I think we did it in our 12 episode. We hadn't we hadn't done it in a long time. Right. Uh, so let's do it. Maybe, maybe we should we should introduce each other. That's right. I'm 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 here <laughs> with my, my with my friend and co-host Rob Mitchum. Right, and uh, straight out of Minneapolis, the uh, king of music podcasts, Stephen. Whoa, Hyde. you gave me way more flair. <laughs> I just gave you the generic, my friend and co-host. Uh, well, you know, last time I looked at the charts, you were like four of the top ten podcasts. So well, you're just you're, you're dominant. Um, we're here with the star of Night of the Hunter. Cape Fear. <laughs> Recently celebrated his 103rd birthday. The friends of Eddie Coyle, <laughs> Robert Mitchum. Uh, I think I said this in a, in a prior episode, but I'm always amazed and impressed that you are mentioned in a Velvet Underground song. Uh, you know, it, I actually, it's, I just listened to that song. Uh, I, I totally by coincidence, I listened to it on his birthday the oh, other day. Man. And, and it came up and I was like, oh, this, yeah, hey, there's me. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> wow. It's like if there were a movie star named Steve Hyden, I would totally take credit for being name-checked in a Velvet Underground song. That song is New yeah. Age, by the way, from the album Loaded. That's one of my favorite Velvet Underground songs. I think I said that yeah, at the time. Beautiful song. But anyway, this isn't 36 from the Velvet Underground. It's 36 <laughs> from the Vault. We're talking about Dick's Picks 13. This is May 6th, 1981. At the Nassau Coliseum, um, and you know we talk on, on this show about like whiplash <laughs> from one album to the other, and I think generally you know we agree that we like that these shows you know leap you know back and forth in dead history. I think it would be harder to listen to these albums if it if they were in chronological order. It, it's cool to be in the seventies one week, in the eighties the next week. Uh, I really like that, but like this record, I think after the the previous three Dicks picks, I mean, we were in 77 for 10, 72 for 11, and 74 for 12, three obviously very celebrated years in Grateful Dead history. To go from there to 1981, not a celebrated year in, in Dead history, um, I struggled with this album at first. I came around eventually, but uh, the whiplash aspect w- was pretty difficult for me. Uh, at the beginning uh, with Dick's Picks. Yeah, there's no way to avoid, you know, stating that this is sort of the runt, <laughs> the runt of the litter of our summer tour. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's not the show's fault. It's just that it's surrounded by 
giants <laughs> of the Grateful Dead catalog. Uh, like some of their best years, some of their best shows, some of their most beloved volumes of Dick's Picks, I think. Uh, and then sort of tucked in there, almost completely forgotten, is this show from 1981, which, as you said, was not a very, you know, well-regarded or even, like, acknowledged <laughs> Grateful Dead year. I think there's only been three shows put out from the entire year of 1981 officially. So, yeah, it's uh, it sneaks up on you. And I, I, I didn't have as much whiplash as I thought I might. And I think the reason is... I've been watching so many of the shakedown streams on Friday nights that the Grateful Dead have been doing uh, over the last several months. And I guess actually they've stopped doing uh, as of this recording. But uh, so many of those shows were late 80s and were Brent shows. And so even though for the podcast we've been digging into the early 70s and the Keith era, there was... uh, sort of a weekly dose of Brent era dead that I was tuning in for at least part of it. So, so it wasn't as, as, as huge as an adjustment as I, as I thought it might be. Late 80s dead, though, is more dynamic than early 80s dead. I, uh, we talked about this, uh, I think, what was that, Dick's Pick 6, I think was 1983. You mm-hmm. know, there's that stretch from, like, say, like, 81 to 86 that feels like it's a bit of a stagnant time for the dead creatively. You know, they didn't put out right. any studio records. You know, they weren't producing a lot of new songs. I mean, we, you know, we were just, like, in 72 and 74 where, like, they had multiple great albums coming out. At the, you <laughs> yeah. know, at around the same time, and like just you know, like just so like scores of classic songs being put into the set, and just like a, an embarrassment of riches, and it really kind of dries up uh, in the early '80s. And I mean, I think you know, to to I guess bring up a familiar trope of our show where we complain about the show that Dick picked. I think you know, as as much as you want to say, like, 1981 isn't a great year, I think that there were maybe other shows from this time that they could have gone with that mm-hmm. had, like, a more interesting set list, for instance. I think, like, the set list of this show is, like, pretty boring, although there are two special bonuses for us, and I, I don't mm-hmm. want to spoil those, but there's, like, two <laughs> things that this show doesn't have that, like, we often joke are sort of endemic to like every other Dick's picks that we listen to. Um, but you know, there, there are certain songs from this period that I really love, like say Althea or feels like a stranger. Like where <laughs> that's going to be a complaint I have later on in the show that we're not going to hear that song. Um, it, we don't get any of those songs. Instead we're, we're getting like a lot of songs that we've heard already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's sort of compounded 
the sense of like boredom for me right. with this album at first. <laughs> but again, I, I eventually I got into it a bit more. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's no question that uh, we're dealing with so many giants this season, and this is going to be this was going to be diminished right. no matter what. And I think you know part of the I don't know flatness of how this show comes off might just be down to how Dick himself thought about the '80s uh, because he does really almost seem sort of forced into picking Brent era shows. We talked about this a little bit in five and six where they were sort of strange picks and we speculated on a bunch of reasons for that, but it, you know, Dick left to his own devices would probably never leave pre hiatus dead. Even 77 dead. I think he sort of felt was a little overrated by the dead community, but when he uh, you know feels like it's time or is told that it's time to select an 80s show he kind of picks an 80s show that almost isn't that representative of the era or maybe it is but it's like too representative of the era <laughs> it doesn't stand out enough but like I, the thing that jumped out to me is that he picked another brent era show this is the third brent era show in the dicks pick series and he picked another one that doesn't have any brent songs and you know it, more later in the decade, I guess, Brent contributed a lot of material to Dead Sets and sang lead vocals more often, but it is kind of weird that he he managed to pick three shows from Brent's time in the band that he doesn't, you know, he's not the featured performer or songwriter on anything uh, in this set. So it's sort of like a Brent show, but not, you know, he's not a very tangible presence, uh, at least as a a songwriter he certainly is as a keyboardist <laughs> I mean, he's yeah hard. yeah and yeah that's something we're going to talk about some of the you know the bizarre uh brent keyboard tones that you know reared their ugly head in 83 we're going to be dealing with those again and i'll say like too like, i just to compare late 80s to early 80s i think brent obviously was very out in the mix in the late 80s and he's playing like all these synths and uh, doing all these kind of like, in, in some cases, maybe sort of strange or jarring uh, keyboard sounds. But like he, he seemed like more in command at yeah, that time yeah. and, and what he was bringing. Where at, at this time, I feel like there's this weird frustration where like if he's playing the Hammond organ, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Like there's some real great organ showcases in this show. But then when he gets that plunky... I guess is that a Rhodes? Do we yeah like figure the out the Rhodes thing? The really like heavily sharp treated Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, that can be pretty difficult to, <laughs> to contend with, and that's another yeah. thing I struggle with. Yeah, so like you get a little bit of a whiplash just between different keyboard tones. Yeah, in the show a little bit. And but. I think maybe what I'm trying to get at is it's like this awkward period where I think by the end of the '80s, it's fair to say that Brent had sort of risen to be. You know, one of the, I don't know, I want to say like co-leaders of the band, but, you know, a pretty prominent force in the band's sound by the late 80s, for sure. Like I mean, he was definitely like a third front man. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you got Jerry, Bob, and Brent. Like, he's sort of like, uh, yeah, just behind Bob in terms of who is in the spotlight in a dead show. Uh, but those are the late 80s shows of Brent, and these early 80s shows are sort of like an awkward middle where... I think he's got a lot more confidence in this show than he did, say, in, like, Dick's Picks 5 from 79 when he was still brand new. But uh, he's still not quite out there in confidence in the way that he would be later in the decade. So you get this sort of, you know, unsatisfying middle a lot of the times. 
another thing about this album too is like just the sound quality is not as good as yeah. like we were used to in the early 70s like where we, we had like a we had a betty board i think that was the 77 show we had the, the kid candelero did he do both of the 70s shows i can't remember i know he did at least one of those um i think the 72 and, might have been bob matthews actually so okay yeah. oh so bob matthews so you know like kind of all-star team mm. of like you know people recording shows and then you know dan healy we have again for this one and like we talked about this with the 83 show i mean it definitely sounds like a little wonkier yeah you know and and, and maybe that is appropriate for this era of the band because I kind of think of this era as the dead being like a little down and out and like outside of the culture, like as far outside the culture as they're going to get in their entire history. Um, you know, cause like now, I mean, we're so used to like the dead being this like relatively like mainstream, like stadium rock band mm. uh, where, you know, people of all ages go to see them and, uh, you know, they're this big concert attraction. And whenever I think about the dead from this period, I think of Jesse Jarnow's book heads mm-hmm. where, one of the most memorable parts of that book for me is like when he's writing about like the early eighties dead scene and like how it was like, you had a fair number of college kids at that time following them, but it seemed like there was like a lot of just sort of for lack of a better term, like degenerate people hanging around the (laughs) band. Like they were, they were kind of like an outlaw band at that time. Sure. Uh, And, and like the, all the touch of gray people that were going to come into the fold later in the eighties hadn't, hadn't come aboard. Like they weren't like a fashionable band to, to really get into yet. So in a way, I kind of like that aspect. You yeah. know, this, it, it's like the dirtbag dead yeah, it you is. Know, of the yeah. early eighties, you know? Yeah. The, it, so Healy recorded Healy, the dead's longtime sound man. He recorded all the shows in the eighties, pretty much to cassette masters instead of reel to reel, which is what you got in the seventies. So, just right off the bat, you're dealing with like some technology to, that isn't going to give you the warmth of a 70s soundboard recording. Uh, and I think a lot of people prefer audience tapes from the 80s to the soundboards for that reason. Uh, and, you know, for just general mix reasons, I think, like we're going to talk about how Brent is once again exceptionally loud in this mix, <laughs> which <laughs> can really uh, be a distraction, but uh, audience tapes tend to capture the balance between the band members a little better. But yeah, it's got this like kind of glossy, kind of sharp, kind of thin veneer to it. Uh, and it, it, you know, it, it like sounds surface level 80s, but the dead are such a bad fit for that sound <laughs> that it just doesn't really work like if it was Fleetwood Mac if it was a Fleetwood Mac bootleg that sounded like this I think it would work but the dead are just never going to be precise enough to sound good in this sort of glossy presentation uh, yeah it, it's kind of glossy it also feels to me and maybe this this is just because of like what the band was like I feel like instruments kind of like fade in and out mm-hmm. sometimes of the mix in yeah. ways that don't feel like it's supposed to be like that like uh again I just think about like the Betty boards to me that just have that buttery sound to them like they're, they're so rich and full and have such great bottom end right and you're not getting that at all here <laughs> you know this yeah. is like kind of tinny sounding. Yeah, um, I find it so hard maybe, to follow Phil on, on right. these shows. Oh, yeah. And and after you getting can. these 72 and 74 shows in the previous volumes where Phil is just like, you know, he's a god on bass and he sounds immense and incredible in the recording. He just like, I'm I'm sure he's still doing interesting, cool stuff. It's just so much harder to, to pick it out. 
The other thing we have to mention about this album is that there's a hidden track yeah. on it. A very long hidden it, track. A very long hidden track. And again, it's not what we've seen in other volumes, like where you know some songs from like another show get tacked on at the end, but they're in the track list. This is like the old school CD practice, like where you have a song that like fades and it sounds like it's over, and then you put like another song that's not on the track listing, you know, like a minute or two later. And uh, do we want to say where it is yet, or do we want to save that for <laughs> the body of the show? Do we, do we want to like surprise people? Uh, I think that? the secret might be out because when you look at uh, the tracks for Dix Picks Volume 13 on a streaming service of your choice, uh, you might think that there's a 42 minute sane of circumstance, <laughs> which <laughs> would probably jump out at most deadheads. Is wow, that that must be something really cool. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a secret bonus track uh, that comes after a minute of silence. Like, uh, what was the one on Nevermind, Endless Nameless? Like, I think that was probably my first experience with a CD bonus track where you yeah. you let it right. run for 10 minutes of silence at the end and then you get an extra song. And then there was the Tool album that has like, uh, I think it's like 69 tracks or something. Okay. And they're each a second long there's something wacky about uh, that. i can't remember what, wish which, the nine inch nails ep wish had uh tracks 98 and 99 were songs and so there were right like 93 one second long silence silent tracks till you got to those so yeah although, i'm also gonna mention i'm gonna mention one more too and i feel like i've talked about this band on another uh episode uh, which is funny, but Cracker, oh, the sure. band Cracker, yeah. David Lowry band, the Kerosene Hat, yeah. which includes a cover of Loser, by the way. And I think that's like the last song on the track listing. But then there's like a bunch of tracks at the end. I think there's like a hundred tracks, but then there's like three actual songs buried in there, including a song called Euro Trash Girl, which right. is like one of the best. That was kind of a hit songs. for them even too, right? And it was, yeah. it was hidden yeah. at the end, yeah. Yeah, so, so I don't know why they decided to do it this way, and we'll talk about it, I think, when we get to it. But it was, it's a very strange choice uh, because, yeah, it really interrupts the flow of the show <laughs> and kind yeah, of uh, well, it's like, almost well, o- and like, o- overshadows the rest of the show, in, in my opinion. And it's, it, well, are we it's not going to say what the song is? Because like, saying a circumstance is only about six minutes long, and then this bonus cut is like... Is it, is it like 30 minutes or 35 minutes? Yeah, it's, it's it's very long, yeah. It's almost 40 um, minutes, yeah. Are we going to say what it is or all are right, we going right. to wait? Well, we'll say what it is. So it's a, it's a Scarlet Fire from November 1st, 1979. So uh, yeah. jumping back two years, year and a half, I guess. Right. Uh, to, you know, more earlier days of Brent's tenure in the band. Uh, dropping in, you know, not just a, a bonus curiosity but you know one of the dead's iconic jam vehicles for this era and honestly like a pretty tremendous version of the song or the the two songs like it i mean it's it's a it's a great version uh so for me it's like extra distracting because i'm like why isn't the rest of this volume as good as uh the one that they didn't even list on the back of the cd yeah and i guess the connection is that it was played at at Nassau Coliseum. So, right. like, I guess that's the connective thread. But otherwise, yeah, it's, like, from significantly earlier than, like, the rest of the show. So we'll we'll, we'll, we'll save the conversation about that for, for the body. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely a very interesting aspect of this album. Um, 
Speaking of Nassau Coliseum, we should talk about this venue. Yeah. Because um, this is one of the, like, I guess, big dead venues that people don't necessarily think about as being, like, an iconic dead venue. But, like, they played here so many times. Yeah, 42 shows uh, starting in 73 and ending in 94. So you get, like, almost all of the dead, all of dead history at Nassau. And, you know, again, that's, like, you know, over 21 years, 42 shows. So they're playing like multi-show runs basically mm-hmm. nearly every year. I mean, just doing the math there, I would imagine that, you know, if they're playing a show on the East Coast, they're going to stop by NASA at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is like a venue. It's like right outside of New York City. It's yeah, about, I guess, seven long miles I- or so. It's on Long Island. Yeah. It's where the Islanders played for a long time. Yeah. Which it made me think again about, you know, we've talked about this before, but like the, the connection between jam bands and like hockey arenas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's just like such a great union because it's like not, it's never like the nicest arena mm-hmm. like in the area. It is, it, it's kind of like a ratty arena. I mean, I, I know just like for you and I, um, I think about uh, Allstate Arena uh, outside of Chicago. Right. Like that's, that, that, you know, just being like a dumpy hockey arena but like just being a great place to see jam bands because you feel like no one really gives a shit that like (laughs) people are doing drugs or like you know partying too much it's like okay you're not gonna have a nice venue but like you're also not gonna have too much adult supervision yeah it's like these arenas that are kind of desperate for the business so they're willing to put up (laughs) with the traveling circus rolling through every year and yeah out on the east coast you got a ton of them like worcester the Worcester Centrum, I think it's called something else now, of course. Or like, I think we, we talked about Hartford a couple episodes ago, the Hartford Civic Center. So, yeah, it's funny that they played Nassau so many times because they played Madison Square, Mad- uh, Madison Square Garden so many times, you know, over their history, too. So I think it's almost like maybe during basketball season, they, when they couldn't get into Madison Square Garden, they would just do a run at Nassau instead. Uh, you yeah. know, just a few more miles up the road. But... Yeah, certainly they, uh, you know, made it their home. I think they've got a banner up at the wall on the in the rafters at Nassau too. I think when Dead and Company played there most recently, they had some sort of banner raising ceremony for how many shows the Dead have played there. So it was considered one of their East Coast homes for sure. I gotta say too, man. Like if you live in New York City and you haven't seen the Dead or like your other favorite jam band like a hundred times at least, then like what are you doing? Like <laughs> these these bands played there so goddamn much. Yeah. Like if you live in the middle of the country, like me and Rob I mean you live in Chicago, so like you can be assured that bands are probably gonna come pretty close to you. But for me generally, like I'm driving like multiple hours <laughs> to see you know, one way to see any of these bands. So like You're just not to have just it in your backyard. The, taking the subway. Taking the exactly. Long Island Railroad, yeah. Um, other big shows at, at NASA, uh, there's a Bowie, uh, show from 76 on the station to station tour yeah. that was, uh, recently released as a live record. That's like my favorite David Bowie live record. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's so awesome. Yeah. Um, a killer band at that time. Um, I think, um, I'm trying to think of the other live record that was released. I think that's like the same tour as stage that live record. Hmm. Um, that's what it's called um it's like the i might be screwing that up but anyway it's like the same tour but i the nassau coliseum tour or show i think is better from that station to station era uh pink floyd played the wall 
there in 1980. I mean, that's like a pretty small tour. So yeah, I think it was just pretty lucky. I think it was just NASA and LA, right? Were the only U.S. states? Yeah, and I think they played in London too. Yeah, on the original Wall tour, which I got to see Roger Waters do the Wall. I don't know; it's several years ago now, but that was pretty amazing. (laughs) The Wall. I had a bootleg of the Pink Floyd Wall tour too when I was a teenager and loved watching that. Just that whole gimmick of building the bricks oh, yeah. in front of the band and then knocking it exploding it at the end that's brilliant so cool. rock theater yeah brilliant so rock good. Theater not there. to mention the big puppets the dead should have had big puppets they should have had a big skeleton <laughs> puppet <laughs> that's true it's, i mean yeah you've got like pink floyd and iron maiden they all yeah, have, they like, could have big borrowed uh eddie from iron maiden when they time. weren't on tour <laughs> Is that, that's his name right eddie the iron maiden skeleton and uh yeah put uncle sam top hat on him and yeah, ran them across the stage a couple times. People would have loved it. Dead was just putting all their money into the into their audio <laughs> equipment. You know, like they they, they didn't have a time for some, that theatricality. Uh, yeah, some pretty ugly um, stage sets in the nineties. I think they could have <laughs> they could have splurged on a inflatable right? pig or two. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, for us, a big part of Nassau history is yeah. the island tour. Got to mention uh, it. Fish yeah, plate. that was the other island, as we said, Rhode Island yeah. and uh, Long Island. So, yeah. Yeah, part of the island tour was pretty brilliant. Um, the Dead, uh, as part of this run in May of 1981, they played three shows. They took, I, I guess it was a, the 5th, 6th, 8th, and 9th they played. 6th, 8th, and 9th. They didn't play the 7th because they taped a, I, I guess, pretty famous episode of uh, Tomorrow yeah. with Tom Snyder. Um, and it, like Ken Kesey was there. Um, you can find this on YouTube um, or any, like most other, I guess, streaming service. And uh, you and I both revisited that interview because we're just so in-depth <laughs> with our 36 yeah. from the vault. Research. <laughs> like we're gonna watch this interview. It's a great interview. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Like what what blew me away, and it was really f- fun to see them like in an interview situation because, you know, we hear the music, but we don't necessarily connect it with like what they looked like mm-hmm. at that particular moment in time. But like you see Jerry, and like Jerry's yeah. looking pretty Jerry by this time. He has some pepper in his beard and hair, but like looking pretty gray, and. I looked up his birthday, and like, it blew me away yeah, that he was only thirty-eight. He was an old thirty-eight at the time of yeah. these shows. He was. He. I mean, he was about to turn thirty-nine. He was about three months shy of his thirty-ninth birthday. Um, Bob was only thirty-three, and Bob looks like he's <laughs> looks like, he looks like a college ten student. years younger yeah. than that. <laughs> yeah, he looks very boyish. And I think in the interview at some point, yeah, Tom Snyder yeah. even makes a joke about that about like. Like, did you guys start in the band at the same time? Because, like, yeah, Jerry looks, like, 10 years older than he is, and Bob looks, like, 10 years younger uh, than he is. Jerry is, uh, um, he's looking sharp, but though. He's I got a blazer what... on. I mean, he's got the black T-shirt he wore for blazer. 10 years. But uh, he's got a snazzy black blazer over that T-shirt. I'm, I was very impressed how how much he was styling. 
And he looks like fairly. Yeah. He looks pretty thinner. fit yeah. too. I mean, a little thinner. And you know, there was another appearance, a talk show appearance that that Jerry and Bob made. That's also pretty well known. You can find it on YouTube, on David Letterman, mm-hmm. the, the following year, very early in the history of Late Night with David Letterman, and. It, it's great seeing Jerry in these situations because like as anti show business as the grateful dead are like Jerry Garcia is a great talk show guest and like he can tell stories. He's, he's very infectious. Like in the Tom Snyder interview, he's like laughing a lot. He's 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 extremely charming Yeah, and he can, a lot of charisma and he can schmooze, you know, and like you could see like, he had the capability yeah. to turn that on, like when the cameras were on, and he's funny too. He's a very self-aware. Um, like, the, like the Letterman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watched that, but like, there's a yeah. little sketch like where <laughs> Letterman's teaching Jerry Garcia yeah, how to I play Proud Mary on guitar, which is like pretty funny. And it's weird that uh, like Bob is kind of yeah. awkward. I feel like it's it's almost like a reversal of their onstage dead show persona, because Bob is usually oh totally yeah, yeah Bob Jerry never talks. Like, sort of rabble rouser i'm gonna tell a story or tell a joke between songs uh but yeah when the cameras are on jerry is like totally at ease he was like smoking on the letterman appearance and asking for an ashtray and yeah yeah you're kind of giggly and right. then bob would what's his famous line from the letterman it's like having more fun than a frog and a uh, i should have written it down <laughs> a frog and a like frog and <laughs> yeah like it's, hot it's milk a weird comment that is even letterman like that? is kind of like weirded out by and then they Zoom in on Bob, sort of doing a <laughs> deadpan look. I don't know. He's he, he's very awkward, but Jerry right. is very warm. And oh yeah, Ben. Yeah. Uh, can you describe uh, your favorite memories from that era? Uh, well, uh, yeah, you can see why people liked being around Jerry. Like he's just like your, you know, happy grandpa. He is. Uh, and- but yeah, it's it's really yeah, it's it's fun to watch. It, like it's so strange that the dead were kind of like talk show celebrities for a little bit because they were on Letterman something like five or six times in the eighties, right? It's they were pretty regular guests. I don't think they were on a lot of other talk shows, but uh, Bob and Jerry kept coming back. Which show. I think makes sense because yeah. Letterman was like the college kid show, and I think you know the Dead obviously had a huge college following, and they yeah. weren't necessarily a band, especially like in the early '80s, like when they didn't even have any new albums. Really, I guess like right. here they would have been promoting Reckoning because that record. Yeah, it came out just uh, right, just a couple weeks before this. Actually, yeah, April first is when Reckoning came. So out. they would have been promoting that, but. Um, it's interesting because it's pretty clear, like in the in the Tom Snyder perform uh, the, the the Tom Snyder interview and also in the Letterman interview, that like the the focus is always on the '60s, and mm-hmm. and having them talk about the acid tests and really like kind of holding the dead up as like a symbol of like that bygone era, and uh, I think it just speaks to something we were saying before, and we talked about this in the Dick's Picks six episode where. I think the dead generally were looked at as this, uh, you know, anachronistic band. You know, they weren't really part of like what was going on in rock music or pop music in the early eighties. And, and in terms of like the mainstream media, they looked at them as like, Oh, they're, they're this, 
60s band that has like a lot of crazy fans, you know, crazy hippie fans right. who follow them around everywhere. And, they, and that was like their yeah. their persona. And I, I wrote this in our outline. This is kind of a tangent, but like it's interesting to me because obviously the dead are still very connected to the 60s. But like I feel like for fans like of our age or our generation that like we associate them more or at least as much with the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I think... I, I was just asked about this um, for another like podcast that I guested on about why the dead have kind of had this critical renaissance over the last decade or so and connecting it with these like talk show appearances, watching them. It's like, I think they've finally like severed themselves from this like symbol of the sixties status that they had for so long. Like it really feels like in the early eighties, there was just this moment of like, I don't know what triggered it, but looking back at the late 60s, because it's not even like the anniversary of the Summer of Love or anything like that. Maybe it's like the 15th or 14th, but uh, of people going, hey, the late 60s, wasn't that a crazy time? Let's have the Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey on our talk show so they can talk about like, you know, the acid test for the 500th time. Uh, And the dead kind of stayed that, you know, inhabited that symbolic role probably all the way up through 1995 because it was that was the big knock on them was they were doing these stadium shows and people were showing up to kind of like pretend like they were back in the 60s uh so people weren't really talking about the music they were just talking about this sort of you know multimedia time travel experience of pretending like you were a hippie and 60s hate ashbury for an afternoon uh and you know not having that you know, it's kind of them leaving that tag behind and people, you know, engaging with them more musically instead of uh, culturally, I would say. Uh, yeah, naturally, you're going to be drawn to the 70s, which is certainly their most fertile creative ground. I think everybody agrees on now. And so they've kind of lost that tag and by doing so have opened themselves up to a lot more people who are maybe turned off by that version of the dead. Yeah, it's kind of go back to what you were saying about like why people in 1981 or 82 like we're caring about the dead as like a 60s symbol i mean i think it has to do with what we were saying before like jerry garcia you know he was in his late 30s i think a lot of the people of that time were entering like their late 30s early 40s and we're in a position now like where they are in control of the media so like they're in control of the media now like the baby boomers are like really kind of assuming control you know, a control that they're still hanging on to, like with very firm grasp, you know, here, like almost 40 years later, but like, you know, they were yeah. coming into prominence. They were also getting older. So they were more nostalgic, you know, like the, the big chill, that movie I think came out in 1983, you know, and that's a mm-hmm. very like baby boomer, like looking back on your college years type movie, um, you know, classic rock radio really started to become a thing around this time too. Mm-hmm. Like that became like yeah. a radio format. So, um, you know, the boomers were, again, assuming control of the media at this time, and they were really looking back at, at So it's this just time. like romantiz- romanticization yeah. of, uh, of their sort of coming of age, like codifying it as when things were great and oh, yeah. cool and adventurous. Well, I think even yeah. like Tom Snyder like talks to them about Woodstock, you know, which again was like a, a famously bad Grateful yeah. Dead di- uh, gig, you know, like some good, some good dead quotes. Yeah. When he asked them about Woodstock, yeah, but, where they talk about how terrible it was. But like, you know, like <laughs> now, like I think, you know, like deadheads care about Woodstock, but like we don't really dwell on it as much because like musically it's not 
their finest hour, you know, to say the least. No. So like we'd rather talk about some you know, we'd rather talk about like Harper College or something. You know, there's like lots of other shows right. from that era that are more interesting. If you were to review your performance at Woodstock when you were there. Oh. <laughs> that was the worst. Oh. That, that, that good, huh? We had a lot of failures. Uh, it was amazing. It was we started, had a lot of electrical to rain, problems. It started to rain and we were getting shocked. And yeah, the stage, the stage was, was sinking. And metal and yeah. wet. Yeah. Every time you touch something, you get these shocks. And, 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 the and there were people... Four foot blue arc. And there were people in back of the the amplifiers hollering things like, The stage is collapsing. Yeah, the stage is going down. You're melting. It's totally weird. Totally weird. You know? our, our sound man had decided that the PA that they had there was no, no good. good. So they, they had to set up their own. But he neglected the ground. So every yeah. time you touch your instrument, you got a horrendous shock. Yeah. Meanwhile, the, uh, the stage was collapsing. And every time you looked around, there was somebody with a camera like this. <laughs> yeah. It was weird. It was hard to make music. Really weird. Really hard. Yeah. As a matter of we fact, didn't. I couldn't wait to get out of there. And, and besides that, the helicopters were... Uh, that's we're coming through all our. We've, we've always blown it at important things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, really, it's, the big ones always slip away. Yeah, yeah. Slip it's, away it's, it's, it, it's probably why you're here tonight, hoping for a comeback. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> what do you mean come back? Um, looking at spring of 1981 in terms of a tour, and I know this because I followed them on this tour. As I said before, <laughs> it started in in late February. And uh, I believe it was in Chicago. I think they started in the Midwest, which, which I think was another reason why I wanted to follow this tour because I thought, like, starting in the Midwest, like, I would have gone to this show. Like, if I were alive, I would have seen them in Chicago. Um, at the Uptown Theater, At the right? Uptown Theater, uh, which yeah. is a pretty good show. And uh, they ended up doing, like, another European tour in 81. I think they did two European tours. Yeah. They went over there twice, which is weird. Uh, and they played a four-night run at the Rainbow in London. In both March and October, I don't really, because biographies just skip over these years, like they go straight from the Radio City Music Hall 1980 performances to Jerry's Coma, and it's just like a void in between there. I have no idea what was going on with this, like, double Europe visit in 1981, but that's that's what they did, and I, like one interesting thing about that March visit is that it had, it also, in addition to the London shows, had the... I, you know, somewhat famous Rock Palast performance with The Who, which you can still find on YouTube because, like, was Rock Palast a venue or just a show, like a TV show? I'm, I've never been I, totally clear I on that. I think it's the venue because there's, like, a marquee that has, the, like, the Rock Palast thing on there. So, I, mm. I mean, I think it was the name of the show, but also the venue. I could be wrong, though, I, but I've always assumed it was, like, a venue. Yeah, you can look it up and see the like very awkward Pete Townsend guest appearance with the dead, which, you know, I love the Who. I think Pete Townsend is a genius. Uh, not the person I would choose to jam with the dead. <laughs> like his style and the dead style are not compatible in the slightest. And they play together on a Chuck Berry song, of course. I think they play around and around together. And maybe that's the like one point of intersection where they can sort of link up uh musically, but there's like Pete just looks totally lost in the more uh, you know, improvisational portions of the of that set. So it's 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 an interesting moment in rock history to watch but not not particularly a successful one i remember you know some of those uh march shows i remember actually enjoying um quite a few of them i like the march 9th 81 show i think is really good that's from madison square garden 
Um, and then uh, there's another show on, on March 14th at Hartford Civic mm-hmm. Center. Like we've mentioned these venues early in the episode. I mean, again, all sort of New York area, area shows. And now we're back again here at Nassau a couple months later. So they were really hanging around the East Coast um, around this time. Um, mm-hmm. And I know like you got some recommendations too for other 81 shows. I, like, yeah. like you mentioned the July 4th show to me, which I listened to and I thought was was pretty fun and mm-hmm. and again like these shows that we're mentioning comparing it to like dick's picks 13 like for me personally like a lot of them have better set lists than what we get here like for instance like right. march 9th uh i think has like a really good uh bird song if i remember correctly um and march 14th has like a really excellent althea that goes on for almost 10 wow, minutes yeah. like, has a really great althea guitar solo at the yeah yeah and we're not getting any of that in, in Dick's Picks 13. Yeah, I, I put out a call on Twitter just to see what people liked from 81. Just because, I, like I said, I really have no sense for what the dead were like in 1981. So I can't really put this show into any sort of context and figure out why it was picked compared to all these other shows. And a lot of people mentioned a show just a few days before this one at uh, the Hampton Coliseum on May 1st. Which actually, it has a pretty similar set list, and I think the set lists were, you know, not that variable at this time in Dead history. But uh, had a feel like a stranger, which I know you are still longing for <laughs> in a Dick's picks. Oh man! Uh, and it also had uh, the you know the wheel coming out of space, which is like a really classic Dead eighties nineties move that I feel like we haven't uh, we haven't got a wheel at all. I think yet so. That's something new that, you know, Dick could have thrown in. The 4th of July show, I thought, was really good. And I kind of wish that that's my, like, uh, they should have released this show uh, pick of the week. Because, you know, for one, the 4th of July is kind of like one of the high holidays of the dead. Like, listening to the dead in July in a hot, sweaty venue is just, like, you know, sort of iconic already. Uh, It's a 4th of July that they played in Texas, so... One, it must have been really hot, but also, you know, they literally have a song about uh, Texas on the 4th day of July that they, of course, opened the show with. So that works really well. And there's a, a really nice bird song in that show as well. Um, yeah, I sw- go ahead. I said, well, I, want, I want to correct myself quickly. I said there was a bird song on March 9th. That's actually the February 26th show that I put, I, cause I made like a, a playlist of 1981 shows that I listened to, I, and I pulled out highlights and the bird song. That February, that, that February 26th show, I think, is really good. Actually, generally, there's a there's a bunch of songs I pulled off from there. Um, that March Night show has a really good China writer that I really liked. So, just to mention that. So we're, we're just mentioning a bunch of other 1981 <laughs> yeah. shows. I, I think as to mitigate some of the problems that we're going to have when we get to Dick's Picks 13. But before we get to the show, we, of course, have to set the scene for what was going on in pop culture at the time of the show in early May of 
Hi everyone, this is Steve from 36 from the Vault, and look, I know a lot of you out there are very hairy people. You're Wookiees for crying out loud. And now that you've been stuck in quarantine, you're even hairier than usual. It's time to get a nice shave. So let me tell you about a company called Harry's. If you switch to Harry's for your razor needs, you're gonna save a ton of money. You're gonna save enough money to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City. You're gonna save enough money to pay for six months of your Netflix subscription. Uh, so, if you want to get involved in Harry's, where's a good place to get started? Well, right now, Harry's is offering a free trial set to our listeners. Uh, what you want to do is you want to go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's harrys.com backslash 36FTV, and you're going to get this trial set. Now, what comes in the trial set? You get the weighted ergonomic handle, you get the five-blade razor, you get the rich lathering shave gel, and of course, you get the travel blade cover. What is the travel blade cover? I don't know, but I think you should order the set to find out. So what you want to do is, again, go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV and start shaving and saving today. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The number one song in the country, Morning Train by Sheena Easton. Yeah. My Baby Takes the Morning Train. Um, I, I don't know if I even knew that was Sheena Easton until looking this up. Yeah, that was like her I first also, big hit. Yeah. I like that it was like originally called 9 to 5, but then there was the Dolly Parton song 9 to 5, so she had to change the name to, uh, you know, a, a more logical choice of <laughs> Morning Train, I would think. Yeah, lots of early 80s songs about, you know, just going to work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it was the age of the yuppie, I, I guess. I guess, right? just, you know, working a regular job. Let's write a pop song about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, other big songs of, uh, of around this time, Just the Two of Us by Bill Weathers, great song. Mm. Betty Davis mm-hmm. Eyes, Kim Carnes, uh, Hall and Oates, Kiss on My List, and uh, Take mm. It on the Run by REO Speedwagon. And I feel like yeah. um, like 81 was like a big year for bands of that ilk. REO Speedwagon, yeah. uh, Journey. Actually, we're going to talk about another, another one of these bands with the number one album in the country. Uh, sticks with Paradise Theater. Um, these like right. you know sort of faceless Midwestern boogie rock bands uh, with like yeah. middle aged singers essentially and doing these like big ballads typically. <laughs> sort of like Broadway influenced a little bit too. Like Sticks, I always think of as very. Oh yeah, Dennis the Young is like very uh, theatrical, and he has like yeah. the Doug Henning mustache. <laughs> You know, so yeah, it's like Broadway crossed with like professional magician type rock. Um, <laughs> he probably did. He did magic tricks on stage. Well, probably, right? that seems like a Dennis yeah, Young move. Or he definitely did like the the hand flourishes of a magician, you know, and like right, uh, yeah. That it, I feel like he wore like a lot of vests, you know, and like those that thing like we put the strap <laughs> around your your forearm, you know, like that. 
like yeah. uh, bartenders wear on like <laughs> riverboats, like that kind of look. Oh, all right. Like yeah, a yeah, garter, yeah. Like an arm like really weird. Uh, so yeah, Paradise Theater. Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, Best of Times is on it, that record. I'm trying to think of like what the hits were. Yeah, it didn't really seem like it had any of the big, big sticks hits. So I was kind of surprised it was a number one album. And I guess it's a concept album about a theater in on the west side of Chicago. And it's like Dennis DeYoung imagining the people that performed at the Paradise Theater. I don't know. It's like there was a deep history to this album that I was totally unaware of, which I'm kind of ashamed of because I'm usually like the rock opera concept album guy. And I should know more about Sticks as a Chicago band, but... Sticks is just, they're just not a good band. Yeah, right? they're hard. I mean, do they're, you have a defense of Sticks? Not really. I mean, I'm interested in them from a purely like rock critic, rock historian point of view. Like, I'm, I'm interested in that era of rock music just because it had evolved to such a, like, like I said, like middle aged guys singing songs about like adult relationships type, type <laughs> yeah. rock. Uh, which, you know, this is going concurrently with like, punk and new wave still around this time mm-hmm. um yeah. but these bands were selling like you know just millions of records i think that the best-selling record of 81 was hi- was high infidelity by ario speedwagon which i think was also <laughs> high on the charts uh this week in sure. 81 so again like just to bring it back to the dead the dead uh, you know you can't get any farther removed from the dead than like sticks and ario speedwagon <laughs> like the, we're way past you know like where the dead are uh in that regard other big albums you have like moving pictures by rush uh mm-hmm. dirty deeds done third cheap by acdc which was like a record that they recorded in the 70s and was re-released after back in black became such a big record uh oh i didn't know that yes okay that's like a bon scott era record that i think was only released in Australia and maybe other countries, but it didn't come out in America. And then oh, Back in Black was such a huge hit that they re- released Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap here. Yeah. Um, I also got a shout out Hard Promises by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That came out the day before this show. Great Tom Petty record. The follow-up to Dan the Torpedoes. Also should shout out Craftwork. Put out Computer World a few days after mm-hmm. this show. So... Tom Petty and Kraftwerk, and you got Tom, you got the Grateful Dead in the middle of, of those two. <laughs> well, I bet uh, Ned Lagan was probably pretty into Kraftwerk, right? Oh, absolutely, and I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Jerry liked Tom Petty. I'm sure he dug some oh. Tom Petty songs. Well, and they, you know, they played some shows with Dylan, where Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were Dylan's band. There you so go. There was def- definitely an overlap there, and yeah, you, you know, Tom Petty was certainly mining similar turf. Uh, you know, obviously that sort of Americana sound, it's like the next generation of what the dead were doing with, you know, the the working man's dead, American beauty dead. Well, right? yeah. But, and like, well, it got to that later, I guess. Well, and like with, with Petty, you know, and, you know, of course, Tom passed away in 2017 toward the end of his life with the Heartbreakers and also with Mudcrutch. He was moving in a more jam rock direction. Like his his shows got jammier in the last 10 years and like his records he would stretch out more uh like it's sort of like that southern rock jammy like mm-hmm. almond brothers type style and uh you know that's one of the many things to be sad about tom petty passing away before his time if maybe he would have explored that even more uh right you know as as he got a little bit older um the number one film 
at the time of the show. I've never seen this movie. It's Excalibur. 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 Yeah. I remember uh, this was like an HBO favorite when I was a kid. And uh, I think I've probably seen bits and pieces of it throughout my life, but have no real memory of what it what it's like, other than it's sort of like, I looked up the trailer. It's sort of like 80s dark king arthur yeah like it's it's dark but not that dark <laughs> and it's uh yeah i don't I don't think it's a particularly good movie D- directed by the same guy who did deliverance yes though, which is john like borman yeah. also did a movie called point blank with uh lee marvin great movie oh, with lee marvin yeah that's a great from one, 67 yeah. uh so i like his other films i've never seen excalibur don't really care to see it i don't really care about sword and sorcery <laughs> type stuff king arthur movies yeah um other big films, Friday the 13th Part 2, part of a bumper yeah. crop of slasher flicks in 81. I know. They weren't even waiting for the Halloween season in 81. They were just releasing like a slasher a week. Like I was just looking at the first, you know, five months of the year and you have My Bloody Valentine, Maniac, The Fun House, Toe Pooper's Fun House, something called Graduation Day, something called The Burning. All of these movies are just like... You know, movies you find on Shutter, <laughs> like late at night, or like uh, you watch a Joe Bob drive-in theater uh, commentary on. But uh, I'm sure they're all the exact same movie, just in slightly different settings or on slightly different holidays. Uh, yeah, that was that was what was packing people into the theaters at this time. I don't, you know, we've talked about Jerry's horror sci-fi tastes. I don't really see him as a slasher type. No, I think that's like that would be like I think yeah, he liked the monsters. He didn't really like. Yeah. co-eds you know flashing their I, boobs and being I think stabbed to death Although, slash, uh, uh, do we know that for a fact though or are we just like assuming that jerry wouldn't be into that well i'm assuming but i'm also assuming uh an, an informed assumption that the one who's really into that is billy billy's probably big <laughs> you know what yeah, like tit, tits and gore uh, right. <laughs> slasher movie fan i wonder if jerry liked nightmare on elm street though like i could see jerry getting into freddy oh, yeah because jerry because like freddy is like I think especially like in the sequels, he's kind of a funny monster. Like it's a little winking. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. So I could see Jerry being into Nightmare on Elm Street. If there's any like deep dead heads out there who are you know deep into the research, if you can dig out Jerry's opinion on Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, and get back to us, I'd appreciate that. Um, I also have to live. You know, I feel like there's a tradition of me bringing up like a film snob uh, pick here. So I, I just want to <laughs> shout out. The movie Miss 45 by Abel Ferreira. That was like Abel Ferreira's like breakout movie. It's like a okay. exploitation movie about a um, female vigilante. Abel Ferreira, of course, went on to make movies like King of New York with Christopher Walken, uh, Bad Lieutenant, Harvey Keitel, right. uh, a lot of other sort of gritty and sleazy New York movies. He's got a new movie out. I think it's called Tommaso with William, William hmm. Dafoe. I think it's called that. I could be butchering that title, but all the film nerd people that I follow on Twitter are really big on that movie, so <laughs> Michael, check that one out. Number one TV show, like you looked this one up. Was this like the top TV movie of the year or, or at this time? No, it, it, it had like the highest ratings for this week on the list I found. It was a TV movie called Murder in Texas, mm. but, which actually had a pretty star-studded cast. It had uh, Sam Elliott, Farrah Fawcett, Andy Griffith. Catherine and Ross, uh, too, in there from yeah. The Graduate. TV movies had, uh, a, a, I think, a little more panache, a little more oh, yeah. uh, credibility back then. Absolutely. So uh, I watched the trailer for this one, too. 
And uh, I got to say, you know, like every time I see Sam Elliott in a movie before he's like grizzled old Big Lebowski Sam Elliott, it just feels totally wrong. Oh, yeah. Because he's got he's got the same voice, but he's like he's like the heartthrob doctor who uh, I believe uh, this might be a spoiler, but he seems to be the one who does the murder in Texas. Oh, man. To his to his wife. I think it might be Catherine Ross in order to get with Farrah Fawcett, or it might be the other way around. I'm not sure, but all these deadheads uh, he, waiting for us to talk about this show are just <laughs> are, are now pissed off because they can't go see Murder in Texas because we revealed Sam Elliott is the killer. Well, if you sync up Murder in Texas with Dick's Picks Volume 13, uh, it, it, it's it's you know the the coincidences they're you know it, it can't be uh, accidental. Um, Catherine Ross and Sam Elliott. Um, are married. I wonder if they met on that movie. It's possible. Or oh, ma- ma- maybe they're already married. So guys, <laughs> go on YouTube, look that movie up and watch Catherine Ross and Sam Elliott fall in love. Okay, we're finally at the show. <laughs> Dick's Picks 13. We finally got the Dick's Picks 13. We can't avoid it anymore. <laughs> can't avoid it anymore. Let's let's dig in. This is a May of 81 dead. Disc 1 starts off with Alabama Getaway. And um, mm-hmm. speaking of spoiler alert, you know, I pointed this out to you. Uh, I was like, this feels very familiar, like this set list. And I realized that like the first three songs... Uh, on disc one are also the same first three songs from Dick's Pick Six. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we go Alabama Getaway. Yeah. yeah, greatest story ever told, and they love each other. You know, and which I don't know if anyone noticed that or they didn't care. I mean, because I mean there were other choices that they could have gone with. Again, we've mentioned many other eighty-one shows. Maybe Dick just liked this progression a lot. Um, I gotta say again, reiterate my familiar complaint from Brent era shows. Can we get a feel like a stranger? Like who do I have to bribe or, 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 or kill to get a feel like a stranger (laughs) when I hear a Brent era show, I want to hear that at the start. I feel like that's such a great opener. And Mm -hmm. again, though we get an Alabama getaway. This is actually the third Alabama getaway we've had too, because it was also in (laughs) Dick's picks five. It wasn't the start of that show, but it was buried. I think deeper in the first disc. Yeah. And um I like Alabama Getaway, you know, from the album Go to Heaven came out a year before this show. Um I guess this counts as the Chuck Berry song because again there's no Chuck Berry so- uh, songs in right. this set. Like the No Berry, the rare No Berry for yeah. a Dick's picks. So And I saw like somebody refer to Alabama Getaway as like the dead trying to write their own 
Chuck Berry song. Oh yeah. So it definitely has that. Maybe vibe. you get to some point in dead history where they're like we're kind of sick of playing these chuck berry songs let's write some songs that sound like a chuck berry song and uh you know call it our own and greatest story ever told kind of fits that too i don't know it's kind of got that same old-timey rock and roll feel to it so yeah they're they're starting off with like it's like the faux berry the double (laughs) faux berry um but the the thing that alabama getaway has that chuck berry doesn't is brent playing this like wild synthesizer solo in the middle which is it's actually it's on the go to heaven version too yeah Uh, it's it's like i think it's like i read something about this spec for that show but it's like a synthesizer that is i think trying to mimic a slide guitar uh and it is just a crazy sound and it and and brent is like you know by far the loudest band member at least at the start of this sticks picks i think it evens out a little bit as the show goes on but for the first couple songs it is like brent midland and his you know you know backing band yeah. <laughs> like uh So it even starts with like, you know, it's not quite a tuning, but like a little like squiggle of Brent, I think, testing out that synthesizer before Alabama Getaway proper starts. And so, you know, from the first few seconds that you are back in 80s dead, <laughs> there's no denying yeah. it. I, I mean, I, I, yeah, the synth solo, it is one of those like, this is so wacky that it's good. It, it reminds me of that like crazy uh like that steel drum sound from like mm. the uh the scarlet fire yeah from dick's fixing the, the iconic like weird thing that he does at the beginning of that scarlet fire where you're just like <laughs> oh like this is the so Marimba. wrong that it's right yeah. you know yeah. and i do prefer that to like again we get the very plunky roads mm-hmm. during the verses which is like i i found again like when i first dug into this that it was that was like pretty hard for me to take but then I just went with it and I got used to it after a while and it didn't mm-hmm. bother me. But yeah, coming yeah. from like all these great Keith tones that we were basking in the previous three Dicks picks. And again, I love Brent, but like that plunky keyboard sound from the early 80s is like pretty hard to deal with. And it's it's so frustrating because he sounds so good on the organ. And we'll touch on that as we go through the show. Kills the it, organ. It's just like, why don't, why don't you just play the organ more, man? But Yeah, it, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's... I don't know. It, it it's part of what they liked about Brent is that he brought some new sounds to the band and they could freshen up their sound without really, you know, writing new material, I guess. They just uh you know, were reimagining material by having these different keyboard sounds on it. But yeah, it's this opening trio is where all the whiplash we talked about happens <laughs> yeah. from from the last few volumes. Yeah, you're getting thrown in the deep end of the Brent zone, you know, uh, at the beginning of this album. I mean, does Brent ever just play piano? You know, he I, does I, on the Tom Snyder show. Uh, we we, yeah. we skipped over what they actually played on the Tom Snyder show. They kind of do like a mini reckoning almost. They do um, On the Road Again, Direwolf, Deep Ellen Blues, and Cassidy. 
Uh, he sounds great doing that. Yeah, he's over to the side playing just an actual piano, and it sounds so good that you know it may be kind of jealous that he doesn't play it more often in these shows. I know he does on those 80, 1980 acoustic sets. He plays normal piano, but uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a bummer that he didn't get a chance to to flex on that more often. So we go into greatest story ever told, the mm-hmm. second song, as we've already said. You know, again, I feel like when you listen to this as an album, having this and Alabama get away back to back, it's like too much. I, I, I just feel like, okay, we're sort of like, I, I had this feeling on Dick's Pick 6, they're like, okay, we're kind of waiting for him to get warmed up, mm-hmm. you know, and like we're kind of sitting through this. You know, I, I imagine that if you were actually at this show, this might have been like a good get up off your butt type double shot you know you're getting excited uh getting into the show but yeah I, this is a pretty boring way to begin this album yeah and i was like I, mean, I, don't, I don't need another you know faux berry you know coming after alabama getaway yeah just to bring uh pete townsend back up since we brought him up earlier it reminds me of the his line on live at leeds where he says we're gonna play three hit signals now are three easiest because <laughs> <laughs> right. th- this really feels like the uh we're just getting our feet on the ground I mean, this is the opening show of the nassau run too so it's kind of like we're just we're getting the feel of the room we're kicking it off with some like pretty straight ahead rockers and uh just you know testing the testing the waters i guess and we go into They Love Each Other after that. And this is a song, I, I mean, I love this song. But again, it feels a little boilerplate, you know, mm. coming in this three-song progression. Um, I kind of got a reggae feel. I mean, they, they kind of would give a reggae flavor sometimes to this song, like when they would really slow it down and, uh, you know, get into the groove of it. You know, it's fine. But again, I am just feel like I'm waiting for the show to really begin. You know, yeah. going through this very familiar progression at the beginning of the show. Yeah, I think they love each other. You know, looking back at the charts for 1981 and how soft, rocky everything was, maybe they thought even though they love each other was an older song, maybe they felt like it fit the the zeitgeist a little bit and <laughs> having that sort of lilting pop reggae feel to it. It is a song where I feel like Brent's. Rhodes isn't as jarringly out of place as it might be on some other material in this show, but yeah, it's kind of, it's pleasant, but forgettable. Yeah. And I just feel like for Jerry, this was, this seems like a pretty easy song for him. Mm -hmm. You know, like he talked about Alabama getaway and greatest story ever told being like kind of good warm up rockers because they knew them pretty well and they're not going to challenge themselves too much. Um, Certainly I think in this era, they Love Each Other wasn't a terribly challenging song. I think in the 70s, they could take this to different places in a really beautiful way. And I think, again, generally, I love this song, but uh, wasn't really feeling this version. Then we get to Cassidy, though. And I feel like, okay, now we're getting into some cool stuff. Yeah, the set really kicks off from here. Exactly. From here on like, out, I really enjoy it, yeah. Exactly. I feel like, okay, we got these boilerplate first three songs that they played all the time. We've already heard it on Dick's Pick 6. Now we're going to get to Cassidy. And I think you and I are in agreement. This is obviously a song that was on Bob Weir's first solo record, Ace. Um, and they played it in the 70s. But like this feels like it was meant for Bob and Brent to play mm-hmm. together. Yeah, it came into its own in the 80s. It's like To me, it's like Bob's Althea 
Like Althea's oh, yeah. the Jerry song of the 80s that uh, you just can't, it's the one song that you can't really imagine being in any other era of the dead, and it just suits their sound in this decade so well. And Cassidy feels the same way. Like those those Bob and Donna versions in the 70s, they're good, and it's a really cool, interesting song, I think. Uh, but in the 80s, it just fits, uh, you know, the, the, the mix that they had, the two drummer dead, the Brent's keyboards, the Brent harmonies especially, I think just sound really wonderful on Cassidy with Bob. It's almost like a duet more than a harmony. It's kind of like they're singing co-lead vocals. Uh, and yeah, it's it's good to get a nice 80s version here because it was on Dix Picks 9, but, you know, of course, that one was in the 90s and post-Brent, so now we're getting sort of Cassidy in its prime. Yeah, and like, and th- this is actually, I feel like, you know, we've talked a lot about how the dead in the late 80s really came into their own with Brent, that Brent had really asserted himself as a big part of the band. It is kind of nice to hear him on this song because, like, I feel like it's not quite as hammy as this song could get, <laughs> like, in the late 80s, like, especially, like, Brent's vocals, like, when, you know, he could really kind of go over the top with, like, the soulful a- affectations that he had, which I love, you know, in their context, but, like, here it's, like, a little more in the pocket, not quite as over the top, and it's really nice, beautiful version, and like you said, it is like a duet more than... Yeah. Brent just singing back up. It's like a bromance. Um, bro. It is. Bro Definitely. harmonies, bromanies. I don't know how to portmanteau that. But yeah, it's like, you know, it's a, it's just bros singing, singing heartily together. It sounds really good. <laughs> arm in arm. Exactly. Just, 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 just hugging it out. The polo um, shirt to polo shirt. <laughs> the next song is a Dick's Picks debut, Jack O'Row. Yeah. Um, which... I'm always excited to, to see Jack O'Rourke on the set list. This is a song that, like, they uh, didn't start playing until May of 1977. I was a little surprised to see that. For some reason, I imagined them playing this in the early 70s, but apparently that didn't happen. They recorded it for Reckoning, so that was the first time it appeared on our record. So it was, like, part of their latest release when they played it here. Um of course, it's an adaptation of like an old English folk song. It's also known as Jack Munro mm-hmm. in, in some uh, performances of it. But uh, this is a great example of like Jerry playing something more upbeat at this time. You feel yeah. like Jerry is so associated with like the fu- the, the funereal ballads, so like the, and really kind of slowing it down. But this is so peppy and like upbeat. Uh, yeah. And his soloing is always great. I feel like on Jack Munro.
yeah, this has got like a hot sort of bluegrass tempo to it, which I really liked a lot. And uh, it's a song I always forget. It's a song I kind of confuse with Peggy O a little bit, I guess, because they're both sort of updated dead versions of the folk songbook, like sort of folk classics. Uh, but yeah, this version was really good, I thought. I was, I was really, like, really, it really jumped out at me. I wish they would have played it more on those talk show appearances because uh, they were doing like their acoustic uh, lineup for Tom Snyder and for Letterman around this time. And they were leaning on like deep Ellum blues, which, okay, like it's kind of weird for them to play a cover, uh, even though that was, you know, a staple of Acoustic Dead for such a long time. But I would have rather have heard Jackaro, I think. Because I think it, oh, yeah. it just it fits where they were at in the '80s much better than a Deep Ellum Blues. Well, I just wonder, like, if this was a song that Jerry had to get warm up to play. You know, like Deep Ellum mm-hmm. Blues might have just been easier to play, like, on a TV show. Because mm-hmm. this feels yeah. like a song that, like, you got to play maybe four or five songs, get the fingers loosened up, and then you can really start ripping it out. Especially yeah. Jerry at this time. That's just yeah. a theory. I don't know if that's true, but it's my feeling listening to this again because. It really takes them three songs in this set to like really start cooking. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too. I think you noted this that like you know normally we're we're so used to this dynamic of like a slow Jerry song and a fast Bob song and then a slow Jerry song and a fast Bob song and in this set it's like kind of the opposite. Like mm-hmm. Jerry's playing fast and then Bob is bringing it back down and that definitely happens in our next song, <laughs> Little Red Rooster. There it is. <laughs> Here it is, baby. 80s dead. Uh, you got to have the Bobby Blues in the first set. Goes on for about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the longer songs of the first set. Um, I said this earlier, though. I saw this, and I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm going to listen to a 10-minute <laughs> Little Red Rooster. But I actually, I was listening to the album, and this came on. And I'm like, well, I'll just settle in, and I'll, I'll hit the skip button when I start to get bored. And I don't even know if this is like a good version of this song, but like I I listened to the whole thing, uh, maybe because there were I was imagining you listening to it because uh, <laughs> there's like multiple uh, guitar uh, slide guitar solos. Yeah, yeah. Song. Both Jerry and Bob take a turn. So uh, <laughs> I, like, I had some it's like slide guitar comma. Exactly. It's like slide guitar comma coming to get Rob in a little My, red rooster. My strong opinions on slide guitar last episode have come back to haunt me. Can we right say? Away. I think we can say definitively that Bob's slide is way worse than Jerry's. Okay, yeah. I think because you said before Jerry, like in our last episode, you're like Jerry's slide is almost as bad as Bob's. I think it's pretty clear that Jerry's his slide solo is, is considerably better than Bob's slide solo in this. Well, song. although I I like Bob's slide solo, I will say that like I I, I kind of enjoyed his slide solo. Yeah, uh, in this little red rooster. It, yeah, uh, you know, Little Red Rooster, I think, brings it into sharp relief because I think they always both do slide in Little Red Rooster, if I'm not wrong. So you get to hear them, you know, the A-B test right next to each other, like who's who's got the better slide chops. And yeah, I mean, obviously, Jerry is better at slide guitar than Bob. I mean, uh, most people are. Uh, but yeah, I guess this is not, you know, the worst Bob slide solo I've ever heard. So I, you know, I thought it was fine. I thought it was funny that it was marked explicit on Spotify. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a swear in there that I just didn't catch in my repeated listens of this. Maybe I was kind of, 
you know, half tuned out because it was a little red rooster and I missed Bob working blue on one of the verses. But uh, I think it was just explicit for, you know, like gratuitous slide guitar. Exactly. <laughs> They're like, this song is pretty schlongy, if you know what we mean. You know, yeah, we got a lot of slide, you know. You it's like one of those you weird warnings you get before you watch a movie <laughs> now on Netflix or Disney Plus. It's like yeah. uh, excessive graphic slide guitar content yeah you, you don't want to listen to this around your kids well you don't want to you don't want to listen to this sober you know you if you're gonna sit with the little red rooster make sure that you black out while you're listening to it you don't want to remember this experience um but again i said but you know like i said i thought i'd skip it and i thought i'd bathroom break it i didn't i listened to the whole thing so that's like it's, a rave review for it's little growing red on us it's a stockholm yeah. syndrome yeah <laughs> We're going to be begging for like a 45-minute Little Red Rooster by the end of this uh, series. Uh, the next song, Dire Wolf. Yeah. Go from the ridiculous to the sublime, I guess we could say. Dire Wolf, brilliant song, of course, from Working Man's Dead. Um, and yeah, this is another song, again, like we had this kind of dirgy blues. And then Jerry is the one now picking up the pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a song that can... You know, sometimes be a little bit dirty, but yeah, it, it's it's another brisk performance by Jerry on Direwolf, and you know, it sounds pretty great. It's like the there's a couple of Working Man's Dead songs in this volume that maybe you would think would not translate well to the you know sort of bigger '80s Dead sound, but yeah, both uh, come across pretty well on this volume, I think. The next track is a song that we've heard a lot in Dick's Picks. I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what kind of streak we're on with like with, with "Looks Like Rain," but I feel like we've hit it on like a lot of the albums that we've talked about lately. Yeah, um, going back uh, to last season, we got five, nine, ten, and now thirteen. So four okay, out of so, thirteen. All right, so it's been we we we've had the, a couple off uh, before hitting "Looks Like Rain" again. Um. You know, and I've said this in other episodes, I'll just reiterate it. I really feel like this song loses something for me when Donna isn't there. You know, like we talked about like what Brent brings to Cassidy, and there's another song later on in this set that I think Brent really kicks to the next level. Um, but this is a song that I feel like without the feminine presence, mm-hmm. um, it just cuts something out of it. And I think you can hear that hole in this performance because... Bob isn't yet at the point where he's just going to be making this into a ham sandwich. You know, like by the <laughs> end of the 80s, this is like a ham sandwich supreme. Bob ranting at the sky, angry at the rain, angry <laughs> at the, the radar. Weather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> watching, watching the radar on the Doppler, just, <laughs> just furious at the Doppler. Yeah. Pulling um, out the tarp. Without the tarp, but like he's not as hammy here, which I feel like um, I miss the hamminess. When I I feel like if Don is not there, then I want Bob to be like Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate. You know, like I want him (laughs) chewing the scenery um, and you're just laying on the pathos. Um, So like his performance is a little flat, but like I know for you, like you were pointing out some like really cool Jerry stuff. Yeah, I, I think what I've learned to do, and maybe it's like the Dick's Picks 9 uh, version, which I really loved a lot, may have tipped me over on this song where I can now kind of like tune out 
Bob's histrionics on the outro and just listen to what Jerry's doing as like a counterpoint to the melody of the song. And uh, this version is, it's like, it's, it's not as good as that Dix Picks 9 version, but you can hear him uh, sort of working out some of the lines that he was going to play on later versions of this song. And I just like how he, uh, I don't know if you would even call it a solo. It's just like a little nice, like counterpoint melody underneath Bob's big, you know, show tuney finish uh, to looks like rain. I think he, I think Jerry is doing really interesting stuff and I like this version for the same reasons. I think it just had a cool mellow outro uh, jam, I guess uh, that, uh, really appealed to me it's a song that's grown on me a lot so far in our dicks picks journey our next song is big railroad blues i don't know how much time you want to spend on this song this feels like the epitome of just autopilot in yeah this i mean set. It, it's another fast jerry song though so we're <laughs> yeah, just getting true. fast jerry song after fast jerry song i thought at first they were playing Alabama getaway again. <laughs> like <laughs> it kind of sounds like a very similar introduction, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean it, I, this first set, I actually like really enjoyed. I think I like it better than the second set of this show uh, because it has like a really agreeable energy to it. I guess like this, when my expectations are so much lower for 80s dead, and I don't mean that as like a slam. I just mean that as like, I mean, how could you not recalibrate after hearing a 77, a 72 and a 74 show? And so a set like this, which is just providing some, you know, pretty good background music for, I guess, you know, this time around, we talked about our contextual biases last episode. I was building a lot of like mail order furniture while listening to volume 13 we like have just been going nuts in quarantine on upgrading our furniture and so i was doing just an absurd amount of allen wrenching while listening to this volume and the first set of the show kept me you know kept me on the uh on the phillips screwdriver (laughs) like and kept me awake whereas the second set was a little bit of a drudge for me so you know something like big railroad blues fits into that where it's it it's not a performance that is you know tearing my heart apart, but it's like entertaining me while I'm doing something boring. I gotta say, man, this was way more time than I expected to spend on Big Railroad Blues. Like you, you <laughs> dug into this song, man. I like blow. I mean, like I I see what you're saying, and I I have to say that I did not have the same experience, perhaps because <laughs> I wasn't putting together furniture. Like I like for me, the uh, the third disc especially is the my favorite part of this album but i totally hear what you're saying and i will say that for me too like you know the whiplash effect that i had during my early listens of this record i got over that when i kind of recontextualize this album in my mind as like yeah, just a different era of the dead and it may be more of like a like a a good time party version of the dead yeah not so much like the artistic exploratory blowing your mind dead that we were mm-hmm. getting in 74 right and, and i think 72 um going on to the next song this is let it grow this is i guess are we counting this as a dick's picks debut of course it's part of weather report suite which we've heard but we've not heard let it grow just as like a standalone yeah, yeah so after the mid 70s when they played a lot of weather report suites 
they dropped the first two parts, the prelude and the uh, the second part, which I'm drawing a blank on the name of it right now. Uh, but the um, they just kept let it grow, which I've, I've talked about this in other episodes where it seems like a lot of Bob songs follow the structure of like a very quiet, poetic introduction that builds up to a big crescendo of Bob really uh, selling it. <laughs> uh, and Weather Report Suite, I feel like, is the most elongated version of that Bob Ware strong s- song structure. Uh, so I actually kind of prefer when they just cut to the chase and kick right into Let It Grow without the first two parts of Weather Report Suite. I am a you know well-documented at this point uh, Weather Report Suite hater. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so that should come to no surprise to regular listeners but yeah i kind of like when they just hop right in to let it grow it it loses a little bit its dynamics i recognize and i know you don't totally agree with this take but i'm i'm fine with just let's just do the let it grow part without all the lead up yeah i i prefer the full weather report suite and of course we're coming up i think like a really great weather report suite from dick's picks 12 um with the sweet jerry slide (laughs) i love the jerry slide on that and i i i I mean i love i I really like that song and i i I appreciate the epic quality of it and i like how the beginning is more languid and beautiful and then you go into the let it grow section which is definitely more up and and uh you know I guess more rockin'. I wouldn't use the word rockin' necessarily. It doesn't seem totally accurate, but definitely more upbeat than the be- than the first part. Mm-hmm. So I think you lose that dynamic tension that you have in the full weather report suite. Um, but I like this version a lot, and and you made a note of this in our outline, and um, I noticed the same thing that there is like sort of like a Latin feel to this a little bit, um, and it also made me think of like El Paso. Mm-hmm. You know, which also has a Latin feel to it. But I was like, oh, is Bobby Cowboy songing this version up a little bit? <laughs> I mean, it felt like that at times. Yeah. I, um, and in, in, in a pretty cool way. I mean, I, I like what he does with it. Yeah, I think it definitely has a different feel with two drummer dead versus those 73, 74 versions where it's just Billy. And it might be a case where two drummer dead makes the song a little more interesting in some ways, or it at least gives it a different flavor, a different feel. Uh, it almost starts out a little bit of disco-y. <laughs> There's not a lot of disco dead in this show. By 81, I think they've kind of grown out of it, and we don't have a shakedown street or anything that really suits it. But the the very start of it was like a flashback to the drummers messing around with Bobby Cowboy songs and discoing them up. But then it settles into like, yeah, more of a, like a Latin groove that I think gives it a, a, a unique feel because, yeah, it's up against a pretty stiff competition putting it right after the dicks picks 12 version which is you know if you count the jam like a 45 minute long weather report suite and maybe maybe the greatest weather report suite of all time and now you get this little like a bridge version which works just fine as like a late first set rock and jam but uh yeah you know it's it's hard not to think back to the 25 minutes of just you know blissful improvisation that it launches into just one volume ago and then we end this disc with the set ender also for the first set which is deal which was a song that uh during the brent era became like this rousing set closer yeah 
Um, we heard this uh, previously uh, not that long ago in our Dick's Picks 11 episode. They played Deal. I'm to, I think it might be in the middle of the second set. It's like, it's like in the middle of uh, one of those sets. And I remember at the time noting that like I'm used to this being like a more of like a rousing song at the end of a set. And uh, yeah, I think during the Brent era, this was like another song that like was really enhanced by Brent vocally and also instrumentally. And we were singing the praises of Brent's Hammond organ, and this is, I think, one of the great showcases right. for it in the you know, in this show. Yeah, that's like when you talk to people about what Brent did, the best. I think doing a Hammond organ solo on Deal is pretty much what a lot of Brent fans will point to. Uh, and it like what jumped out at me is that it's not even really like an organ solo because Jerry is really the one soloing on Deal. The organ is sort of the the counterpoint to what Jerry's doing. Uh, but it's really great. And on this mix, it sounds like he's the one soloing because, again, Brent is twice as loud as anybody else in the band. <laughs> like the, the mix being all out of whack is kind of, it, it got better and then it gets a little worse here at the end of the show. So you hear this really loud Hammond organ solo. But in this case, it's a joy to hear it so loud because he does such interesting stuff on it. And it's also like you, there's you know, a long line of Cherry and Brent's gifts on the internet of them. Oh, be- that's the best. Yeah. I love the Jerry Brent gifts are, are a gift. Like looking at each other with hearts in their eyes. And oh, yeah. I would wager that, you know, a good 75% of those are from Deal because I feel like that's really the song where Jerry and Brent just locked in and we're, you know, having a conversation uh, over the course of the, the, the jam section of the song. to make i've never been much of a golfer i mean look i've done mini golfing before but that game where you walk around a big field with other old people and you swing balls and you hit them really far i've never really done that game before to be honest with you it never seemed very rock and roll to me but i'm willing to change my mind and 
I think I'm going to start doing it now because of this company called Sinlon. Sinlon is an environmentally friendly company that makes turf for businesses and homes. And they make it from eco-friendly ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. And right now they're doing this really cool offer for 36 from the Vault listeners where they're giving away basically... It's like a putting green. They call it a putting green system. And apparently it's revolutionary. And I'm going to take their word for it because it sounds really cool. But basically, this is something that you can put in your backyard and you can become a master golfer by practicing on this putting green. Uh, So I'm going to give it a shot. And I think you should too. What you want to do is you want to go to www.sinlon.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's sinlon.com backslash 36ftv and you can enter in for a contest to get this free putting green and become a master golfer with me so now we go over to the second disc and we kick it off with new minglewood blues (laughs) and like (laughs) this was like the like a comic relief of the uh, album for me. Like I had some good laughs, like listening to this. And look, I love Bob. I say this with affection, but like just some of his vocal mannerisms in this song are hilarious. Like the way he sings whiskey says has had a shot of whiskey. <laughs> he says like whiskey like three times in a row, like in three consecutive uh, uh, verses. Yeah, and, Bob is. Uh, I'm really bobbing it up on this Minglewood. And I guess, I mean, Minglewood is like one of the first songs the dead played. And they played it all the way up until, you know, the the, the dead ended. Uh, but Bob just, you, I would love, so the, in one of the official Grateful Dead podcasts uh, recently, they did like a supercut of Dire Wolf where they had like three seconds from a bunch of Dire Wolfs from... 1969 all the way up through 1995 i would love to hear the same thing for minglewood of just like bob getting more and more cartoony as he sings the song like right. this this one he's doing the stealing women's thing yeah. that he does a lot in you know 80s and 90s minglewoods but then there's also the whole like t for various cities part and then he just drops in a t for new york city it makes no sense of course uh but the crowd goes wild (laughs) like you couldn't even think of like a more creative way to like shoehorn that in i don't know what it would be there's probably some long island town that starts with t that he could have done instead but you know bob he just he goes for the, the 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 crowd pleaser and uh yeah, I mean, I guess it's a good opener. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. like uh, it, it, it kicks you off the right way. It, it's got even more slide guitar. Oh, so yeah. I continue to so be uh, punished for my bad takes. So but, much uh, slide guitar karma for Rob. Just getting tons of slide guitar karma. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I got to say that I listened to this and then I had my own shot of whiskey. <laughs> had a shot of whiskey. Yeah. It's How great. could you not? And then I wanted to go steal some women's. But, <laughs> Stealing you know, I, women's from their wanna, other... Yeah. <laughs> then I thought better of it. Um, <laughs> then we go into high time right. after this. And um, I, I'm always like a little hit or miss on this song. This can be a song that like feels endless. You know, It, it can feel very slow and sluggish. Mm-hmm. Um, and this song um, has like a, a bit of an element to that, especially coming after that new Minglewood blues i mean we're really 
I guess now reverting back to the familiar Jerry Bob dynamic where like Bob's playing this very fast upbeat party song and now Jerry's going to bring it way back. Um but actually I I like this version. I think I maybe liked it more than you did. Yeah. Um I thought it was actually like like pretty nice. Um but yeah, I, I don't know, this song is always maybe a bit problematic for me. Yeah, it's like the the Minglewood is sort of like picking up where the first set left off with this very high energy. And then High Time is the first song in a long, the first song in this volume, really, that brings it way down. And then it kind of kicks off a long run in the second set, which if you don't listen to the bonus track um, or the hidden tracks, uh, this this set gets into a really mellow mood <laughs> for a long time, which sort of, as I mentioned, while bur- building furniture, was not what I wanted to hear, but uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> in in isolation, I think high t- this high time is really good, and it's like you can hear how much the crowd is excited about it. And high time, even though they played it consistently, like they didn't play it very often, and so it was a nice little special callback that the dead would do a handful of times a year. So it's a nice change of pace for what the 80s dead would normally do at this point in the show but i just think it kind of leads them down a path where the energy really drops in this in this show overall so after this we're going to have another dick's picks debut we have lost sailor into saint of circumstance and this was a showcase for bob you know like a kind of like a hybrid of like prog rock and like yacht rock you know it's like a very smooth epic i guess that there was a thought maybe that this would assume the place that weather report suite had for bob like that was his epic Mm -hmm. for a while in the 70s and and then this uh double shot here which um again was on go to heaven along with alabama getaway and althea i guess those would be the four songs that really became big performance vehicles for the dead from that record. And Althea, sadly, is uh, not in this show. Very much missed. One of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, this was fine. I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, we've, we're going to be getting to the hidden track here in a minute. I mean, they really did need to fatten up this second disc because there's not a whole lot going on. I guess because they wanted to preserve the progression that exists on disc three and they couldn't really break that up. Um, but I almost wonder like if they could have just done like a two disc set and just cut this middle part out. Um, maybe it was better the way they did it because we get that, um, uh, Scarlet fire in there, but like, otherwise the tracks on this second disc, I feel like are, are, are pretty expendable. Yeah. I mean, it is like a weird lull in the middle of this show. And I don't know. I like, I like Sailor Saint. I think it's an it's kind of like just like a tier below the classic '80s dead songs that we were talking about with Althea and Cassidy. I mean, Sailor Saint just feels like '80s dead in a way that those songs feel like '80s dead. It's just not quite as successful. Uh, but I, I find it okay. It also fits this same Bob structure I was talking about earlier for what the report suite where you have. The sort of dreamy, sleepy, lost sailor that doesn't really have a real memorable melody to my mind, uh, but it 
builds into Saint of Circumstance, which is this big rocker that he can emote a little more heavily on. So honestly, I could probably do the same thing with this that I do with other report suite, where if they just played Saint, I would be more engaged. Uh, but I do kind of like hearing Sailor at least once, and it's sort of the way it sort of like floats. Um, it, it, it's kind of appealing if it wasn't such like a, you know, the, the, as I said, the energy being at an ebb in this set, it doesn't really help at this place. You know, you call it Yacht Rock, but like, you know, I listened to a lot of the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast that those guys did. Um, <laughs> it's like after they did the Yacht Rock web series and I've, I'm pretty sure they were real big on, uh, you know, deciding what was officially Yacht Rock and what wasn't. And I would say that Lost Sailor is like a song about yachting, like every <laughs> 60s rock act had to have, but probably doesn't qualify as Yacht Rock. I'm not sure if you agree with that take. Well, I mean, I think on the Go to Heaven record, it gets very close to that okay. because I feel like that record, um, in terms of the, the production and the sound and like certainly the iconography, of course, has the famous cover where they're all wearing like the white suits, very, you know, looking very Doobie Brothers on the cover. Yeah. Um, I feel like, I mean, the dead were never going to be like as smooth and as technically proficient in the, in the studio as like Kenny Loggins or Steely Dan or like any of the like quintessential yacht rock bands. Toto. I think like, yeah. Yeah. Like that record in that era is like as close as they were going to get like it's their version of it the grateful dead spin on it um but yeah maybe it doesn't i think if you're if you're going to go to the great if you're going to go to the yacht rock scholars you know <laughs> they probably would not say that it technically qualifies um so after this we're going to get i guess into the meat of the second disc and really i think like i think we both agree that like you could skip the rest of this and probably just listen to this hidden track, The Scarlet Fire from 1979. Right. Um, And it's weird because it does take you out of the feel of the show. And it, in a way, it kind of made me think about like the previous Dick's Picks that we did, 12, where, you know, that was a show where they were pulling from multiple shows. And like, I was making the argument that like, it's not really trying to replicate the feel of like, a single dead show that like each disc kind of feels like its own thing. And you feel like, cause I feel like when we listen to these Dick's picks, we tend to think of them as shows and not as albums. Yeah. And, and Dick's picks 12 felt like an album to me. And I guess in a way, like this is a very album like thing to do. Like it only seems weird to us. Cause we think of this as like a complete entity as a three disc show. Um, but if you think of it as an album, it's like, well, why not have this like long hidden track? Like, it, it it makes more sense if you think of it just as an album, right? What ju- what jumps out to me about the Scarlet Fire is, um, you know, it, you know, Brent is in the band at this time, and it's only you know about two years earlier, but this really does feel like a different era of mm-hmm. the Dead. Yeah, you know, the jamming sounds different. I th- I mean, I think Brent sounds like really great. Yeah, version. like what what he's doing with the keys, I think he's adding a lot. But like, it just feels like weirdly removed from like the rest of the things that we hear on this album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like you would think that 
they could find some other 81 highlights to put in. If not here, then as filler at the end of the set, that would maybe make a little more sense. I mean, there is that venue connection that you talked about earlier where this was also played at NASA just in 1979 instead of 81. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree in like the listening experience of this disc, if you're treating it as an individual disc, is, you know, not just enhanced, but probably saved by including this really great Scarlet Fire at the end of it. Though if that's the case, if that was the goal, then they why make it a hidden track? Why not just make it, you know, two tracks <laughs> on this <laughs> at the end of this disc? Um, and I, you know, you I feel like a lot of these shows once they started doing drum space, that's where Dick would put the disc break uh, because it's a pretty you know, non-controversial place to put a disc flip <laughs> in the middle of drums or space where nobody really notices. And I think you probably could have squeezed the, uh, you know, the he's gone and the jam and drums onto the end of this disc and move this to the end of disc three where it wouldn't have interrupted the flow of the show quite as much. But uh, I mean, that's all nitpicking. I'm happy that this got an official release because yeah, I, I think this is, probably one of the best scarlet fires i've ever heard i gotta say i mean it's exceptionally long (laughs) it's almost 40 minutes uh and i think the scarlet especially is just like so good and i I agree with you that like you hear you hear why the dead were so excited about brent joining the band because of course there's like the famous 77 and 78 scarlet fires with keith in the band uh you know mostly playing piano through the whole jam and he's he's great at it some of the best keith that you'll hear uh but brent is just like all over the different keys in the scarlet jam and it really takes it to another level and you can hear the rest of the band feeding off of it uh like he's got he's using like a really cool clavinet sound uh through sort of like the the early part of the scarlet jam and then later on he's doing this kind of twirly thing that is playing off of jerry and really inspiring jerry onto some interesting tones and sounds and yeah it's like a it's a great argument for why brent midland was the right keyboardist to join the dead and push them in new directions in 1979 and it it's just like kind of a shame that the rest of this volume does not make as good of a case for what he what he did ended up doing you know as the 80s went on
Yeah, and I, I know that we both dabbled in that uh, November 1st show that they're pulling this uh, Scarlet Fire from. And that's a really good show. Mm. In a way, like, you know, I was just thinking about how the Dicks Picks 5, which is also from 79, also had a Scarlet Fire that I thought was really great. It seems like the early Scarlet Fires that they had, like when Brent just, like, when he first joined the band, it seemed like that was a great showcase for for him and, like, what he could bring for all the reasons that you said. Just the different keyboard shadings that he could do that, like, Keith wasn't doing when he was in the band. Mm-hmm. And it, we've talked about Scarlet Fire, and we're both Scarlet Fire fans. I mean, we, we, we tend to put it below... Um, the um, China writer in terms of like the great kind of Grateful Dead segues. And I feel like generally I tend to think of Scarlet Fire as more of like a party song than like an exploratory song. But yeah, this is definitely an exception to that. As you said, the Scarlet is really long and there's that section where in all these segues, like where you don't know what song you're in. Yeah. And, and that section is like really long. Right like in, in this, and it's really cool. And um, it's part of what I like about it being a hidden track, too, is that it's all just one track. So you don't really have... I mean, what's so cool about the China Rider Jam and the Scarlet Fire Jam is that there isn't really like a clear point where one song turns into the other. Uh, but you have to put the track break somewhere if you're making a CD out of it or if you're posting it to archive. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of like subjective... Uh, classification of like oh here's where fire on the mountain actually starts uh but that doesn't happen here because it's all just hidden inside a giant scene of circumstance track (laughs) so you just get that like oozy flow from scarlet into fire which takes a really long time in this version uh but is really cool and i like that it is just considered one big block of music instead of two separate songs Wraps up disc two. Now we go to disc three, and we're back in 1981 after our half hour or so and we're uh, like trip, and we're ripped from the headlines right away in 1981. We are, yeah. Like I feel like this "He's Gone" is famous uh, among Deadheads for the dedication that Bob makes at the beginning to Bobby Sands. And I have to say, I did not know who Bobby Sands was. Uh, yeah. I, I I mean, I've heard this version before, and I, I was like, oh, who's Bobby Sands? I looked it up. He was a member of the IRA in, in Ireland who was in prison, and he went on hunger strike, and he actually died the day before the show on mm-hmm. May 5th, 1981. Um, and Bobby Sands, his, his story has been dramatized many times. I think the most famous version, perhaps, is a film called Hunger that uh, Steve McQueen, the director of 
12 Years a Slave and uh, Widows, among other films. Uh, he directed, uh, starring Michael Fassbender as Bobby Sands. Um, I haven't seen that movie, so I don't know if like The Grateful Dead shouting out Bobby Sands is like the grand finale <laughs> of that movie. I'd like to think that it is. Um, but it's interesting to me because, you know, I mean, we, we, we had that one episode, I don't remember which one it was, where you talked about it being a eulogy uh, of sorts. And of course it wasn't written that way, but like we, you know, we talked about Dick's Picks 9, they play it and it's implied that it's for Brent, although they don't say that it's for Brent. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a little riff in our Dick's Picks 2 episode about how that show was right after Dwayne Allman died and like they didn't make reference to Dwayne Allman. So, I mean, they've they've had people close to them die, but it's not really in their uh, usual makeup to do dedications to people right. who have passed away. I don't think they ever did like a dedication to, to Pigpen or right. anything like the songs for Pigpen. Um, so it's interesting that they did it for Bobby Sands, kind of a political statement from a band that really does not make explicit political statements all that often. Yeah, certainly not in this era, right? I mean, they were involved politically early on in the 60s and 70s because just everything was political at that point. But yeah, it's just a weird, it sticks out in a very strange way <laughs> where I can't... You're like, why Bobby Sands? I know, I like, can't really imagine Bob Weir being that, like, you know, engaged with... Irish English politics of the early eighties, and I you know, and I was two years old at the time of this show, so I have no memory at all of this being a big story. It must have just been, you know, kind of a big media story at the time, and you know, maybe Bob yeah. was moved by this guy's, you know, struggle and stance, and you know, felt the need to say something, and it gets a little. You can hear the crowd response, like. People aren't like, what What the hell is he talking about? Like, people are, give a little cheer, like, oh, yeah, that thing I read about in the newspaper this morning. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's very strange. And it's strange that it is, like, you know, captured in a dick's pic so everybody knows about it. And I just wonder, like, how premeditated it was or if Bob was just like, fuck it, I'm going to shout out to Bobby Sands as we start playing the song. Right. I, you know, I, I just feel like it was probably a fairly spontaneous gesture on his part. <laughs> yeah, suddenly uh, you know. Jerry's like, oh man, this solo has to pay tribute to Bobby Sands. <laughs> like, that's a lot, putting a lot of pressure on me here, man. I haven't really been following, keeping up with this story. I don't know what the deal is. It's like, dude, we can't let Bob read the New York Times during a set break. <laughs> he'll, he'll get ideas. He's reading The Economist uh, or, yeah. Uh, he's got the Wall Street Journal. And a bottle of whiskey. He's drinking yeah. some whiskey. Whiskey. We're in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, Bobby Sands, hunger strike. That's yeah. awful. All right, I'm, I'm gonna shout that out. Yeah, and it, you know, it's a cool. He's gone. You know, the actual he's gone part of it is is fine, I guess. Like this era of he's gone has this really long, nothing's gonna bring him back segment, where. It's kind of fun because I think you can hear like so Bob's gonna ham it up, of course, and he's doing that gone gone but he's gone gone but he's thing that he does like all through the 80s and 90s uh but it's almost like a little bit of like uh there's like a competition going on between bob and brent and even jerry gets involved sometimes where they're all trying to ham it up at the end so it doesn't really serve the uh eulogy purpose of the song but it's kind of like an amusing emotional climax i guess 
Yeah, I mean, I always like the vocal jam. It is, it's like the dead do doo wop type thing. It has like a vocal yeah, group yeah. type quality to it. And they are kind of rubbing it, rubbing it in a little bit to Bobby Sands' family, perhaps. That, uh, <laughs> you know, he's not coming back. It's like, okay, we got, we got it. You not know? exactly like, what you want to hear. It's a grieving family, I'm sure, yeah. It's like the wound is still... Fresh here, the emotional <laughs> devastation. Like let's uh you know, let's let's say that he'll he'll live on in the afterlife or something yeah. like that. You know, that might have been a better outro vocal jam, but I feel like he's gone. Yeah, I, I, I think it's good, but it's really setting up what comes next for me anyway. You get into a, a caution slash Spanish jam. And I feel like you know, we've had Spanish jams come up recently. Spanish jam was a part of Dick's Picks Twelve. Caution to me is interesting because I feel like this was something that like I associate with like '60s dead, and right. I mean this was toward the. the I mean, it, I mean, I guess they were doing this in the early '80s though, like kind of bringing it back every now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, caution jams kind of popped up throughout the '70s. Uh, I mean, it was a pig pen song, so it was kind of like they retired the song when pig pen died but would occasionally come back to this either like Phil has sort of like a, a very characteristic walking baseline in caution, but there's also these really fast chords that Jerry's playing, uh, which is more characteristic of this version. This is actually the last caution jam I discovered. Uh, so it was really like more of a late seventies move. Uh, but it, you know, it's it's you know we talked a lot about dead jam themes in the last episode, and this is another one that would creep in from time to time. Where, uh, you know, kind of when they needed and a launch pad for improvisation, they could they could fall back on this. Uh, and the you know the curious thing about this one is that it starts as a caution jam and then weaves its way around to a Spanish jam, which we've heard in two consecutive Dick's picks and three out of the last eight. Uh, even though S- Spanish Jam wasn't, you know, that common of a dead performance. So it, I, th- I think this is probably why Dick picked this show out of 1981. That's my theory, at least, is that it has a, a pretty unique improvisational segment here coming out of He's Gone into Drums that covers sort of some classic dead thematic jams and sort of hints at that feeling that Dick's Picks 12 has of these, you know, themes they would return to again and again throughout their career. So even though it's an 80s dead show, it is a, has a, this jam, which is a particular callback to uh, some of their 70s moves. Yeah, it's an interesting progression to me. And like I said before, this is my favorite part of uh, Dick's Picks 13. I'd say like, this is the second track on the third disc. The tracks two through seven, I think, is like a really great progression, along with, of course, like with the hidden track on on the second disc. And it is an interesting tour and a snapshot of the dead caught between eras, really. I mean, and we, we've talked again about how like this early 80s period feels a little stagnant. There wasn't a lot of new material coming into the band. You know, they were coming off of this great late 70s run like where they came out of the hiatus and they were they really came back you know full bore in 77 78 then you get brent in the band in 79 and it seemed like they that gave them a good shot for a while and then of course you're going to have another great run 
after Jerry is in the coma and then they have the touch of great success at the late eighties ends up being another great run. And they're kind of caught between eras and like, you're not fully seeing one era era or, or the other that we're kind of used to with the dead. So like you get this caution Spanish jam, like you said, it's kind of looking to the seventies. It's an echo of what they were doing in their previous time. And then we go into the drums jam, other one section. And it's like, not, quite the drum space that they'll come to play at this part of the show um obviously you have the drums part but like it's not getting as far out with the drum effects and like a lot of the things that mickey was bringing to the band it's a pretty kind of straightforward twin drummer type showcase and the jam part you know it is pointing to space and what they're going to do in that section but like even like that 83 show that we listened to that dick's pick six I think had a more defined space section. Oh, for sure. In this section. And yeah. this seems like the jam, it's kind of cool, but it's like, yeah, they're, they're wavering a little bit and then they're going to go into the other one. But then the other one even is like relatively short. It's about a six minute other one. Yeah. Um. So some interesting things here, but like they sort of ripcord out of here before they get too freaky in any of these jams. Well, what surprised me listening to some of the other 81 shows that people suggested is that there were spacier spaces <laughs> in 1981. Uh, but this one is, you know, very uh, explicitly and I think consciously not dis- not listed as space on the track listing for this album. It's just called Jam. And th- the main reason for that is maybe that the drummers just stay out. Like one of the characteristics of space to me is that the drummers take a break and so you get this very freeform jam with no percussion maybe you have mickey on the beam or something but you don't have like a driving (laughs) uh sort of rhythmic underbelly you just have uh you know weird guitars and keyboards and eventually midi coming in uh doing you know more of a free free jazz free rock jam uh, but this one, what I yeah, what's kind of cool about this progression for me is that the end of the Spanish jam, you kind of get like the start of the drums while the band is still out there. Like it gets much more rhythmically intense over the last couple minutes of that jam track uh, under the Spanish jam theme, almost like the drums segment has started, but the band is still playing. And then you have the drum segment and then you have this jam, this not space jam where you can hear members coming back out and joining up with what the drummers were doing. So Jerry seems to come out first and is just kind of soloing over the drums and you hear the rest of the band come out and join them. And it's kind of a cool gradual ramp up to the other one uh, that isn't really like, you know, a space jam, which is just out in the middle of the ocean that eventually resolves into a song. It's more of like an intro jam. Uh, so I, I like that segment a lot. Uh, the other one is kind of weird to me though. Cause it's like a very mellow other one. <laughs> and the other one I feel like should not be a mellow song. Like it just kind of creeps into it. It doesn't really have the big fill bass roll. It just kind of, you know, we're, now we're playing the other one and it picks up in intensity a little bit once you get some vocals, but it's, it's a very gradual incline into the song. Yeah. It feels a little bit like an afterthought or like they weren't totally committed to going into the other one. And like I said, 
it ends up being a relatively short rendition. It's only about six minutes long. And then we get into going down the road feeling bad. And this is a song that we heard in Dick's Picks 12. And another example, perhaps, where you could, you have that recency effect of like remembering what they were doing on 12 and then you compare it to this and it doesn't maybe come out as strong. I will say though that like I actually like this version and it, it goes back to what we were saying in the in the disc one section where you know if you're going to compare everything in this show to to the 70s you're you're bound to be disappointed. You know, you may not even yeah. you may as well not even listen to Dick's Picks 13. But like <laughs> if you can appreciate what they're doing in the 80s which I think on this particular track is like a good time party type vibe. Mm-hmm. And they're about to go into that part of the show, although there is a detour like right after this song into something else before they go back into the fun time party, you know, sort of climax of this set. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I thought this was good. I mean, I, I it, it had a good groove. It, it, it actually benefits from the other one not being the intense showstopper that we're used to being because it actually picks up the pace a bit like when they start playing this song yeah yeah i mean i think that it's a quirk of the way the dick's picks volumes came out that you do have this run here of songs that we heard just one volume ago at like the peak of the dead <laughs> in 1974 and then you have to compare those immediately to the 1981 dead who you're right. It's not fair to compare these bands head to head, but it still is a little bit disappointing to hear the other one and to hear it going down the road feeling bad in, you know, very much abridged and in the box versions after the very exploratory versions of Dix Picks 12. Uh, but then you also have a Warf Rat, which is on Dix Picks 12. But I would say I like this Warf Rat better than the Dix Picks 12 version. And it's another case where Brent's bringing his organ talents really gives the song a a new dimension that, you know, Keith plays really well on Warfrat, but, you know, this having the really rich Hammond organ song sound makes this feel like a, like a church hymn in a way that really suits the song. And honestly, this Warfrat popped out to me as one of the highlights of the whole volume to me. I thought this was a really incredible Warfrat. Yeah, I loved it too. And I actually, I mean, I loved the Warfrat, from Dick's Picks 12 too. I think I liked it more than you did. It came at the, I think the end of the first disc or toward the end of the first disc. And I, I love the first disc of, of Dick's Picks 12. But what's interesting about this version, comparing it to that one, you know, we were sort of saying that this show suffers in comparison to what we just heard. But when you listen to this Wharf Rat in comparison to the Dick's Picks 12 version, I do think that the 12 version, as much as I like it, is a little sleepier than this one. This one feels like um, you know, they don't play it fast, but it feels a little more aggressive. It feels like it's a little more muscular, and I, that has something to do, I think, with you know Brent Brent's great organ playing, but also like Jerry's tone is like really kind of gnarly on this song, and like his his soloing, um, it just has a little more grit and energy to it in this version that I really responded to, and uh, you know we've often talked about the climactic ballad that they play in the second set. And, uh, you know, it's often morning dew, but, uh, you know, I think Warf Rat in this slot, in this show, it really comes through. It really delivers. Mm-hmm. 
So, of course, <laughs> what does Bob do? He's got to play, uh, you know, he's got to play a Chuck Berry cover, right? I mean, this is, we haven't had a Chuck yeah, Berry song yet in this entire set. So here's, here's obviously the Chuck Berry. Uh, but no, he plays Good Lovin', which, as we talked about, means this is the rare zero Berry show, non-Berry show. Yeah. Uh, Couple faux berries, but no, no actual yeah, exactly. berries. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Like, would you rather have a berry or a good uh, love? You know, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of you know, pretty much equal to me, I guess. <laughs> like the the Bob Good Lovins. I mean, we had a really great Good Lovin. I guess that's a few episodes ago now on the the Harper College show, and that was. That was Break a big pen good lovin' and had an amazing jam to it. And the Bob good lovin's are just kind of corny by comparison. I mean, I don't know. My wife always gives me a hard time when good lovin' comes on <laughs> during a Grateful Dead show <laughs> because it is just like at this, you know, to, to our generation, such a like, uh, you know, oldies hit that doesn't really have any coolness attached to it at all. But, uh, you know, yeah. Bob's got to send him home happy, as we say, almost every episode. Uh, and this is the way, the the vehicle he used for that on this show, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I tend to appreciate this song in the same way. That, like, I don't know, this is like very like 80s Beach Boys to me. You know, like, 80, <laughs> like Beach Boys playing a county fair and doing like the the good time, you know, kind of cheesy. Yeah, like, oldies. shooting the finger guns. Uh, like, yeah. Right, exactly. Which... Um, you can you can roll your eyes at that, and I do roll my eyes at it. But there's also an element where, like, if you can just kind of lose yourself in that a little bit, there is like some pleasure to be derived from just the good time party aspect of that side of the band. And you know, we really love the Dead for their more sort of esoteric, artistic, experimental, exploratory side. And I always appreciate the fact that that you know that same band that can you know jam out for thirty five minutes on a Scarlet Fire is also going to do a really corny song like Good Lovin' <laughs> and 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 it, you know they they can do both and that's the great thing about the Grateful Dead so I so in that respect I really appreciate it. Um, also, got to say too, like no Tennessee right. Jed. We have not heard Tennessee Jed at all. They did not hit either of our uh, triggers really on this show. Yeah, no Jed and. Yeah, for all the complaining that we've done about this this set list, which again I think overall I think is a pretty boring set list, but they didn't do Barry, they didn't do Jed, so you know we got to be fair <laughs> and give them some credit for that. This is like um, a monkey's paw, like <laughs> we complain about Chuck Berry <laughs> and uh, Tennessee Jed, and this is what we get. So yeah, shame on us. So then finally we wrap up with "Don't Ease Me In" or "Don't yeah, Ease," yeah. if you will. Uh, which was also on Go to Heaven, uh, although this is like an yeah. old song. I mean, it, it was like, I guess, finally recorded uh, for, yeah. for Go to Heaven. Yeah, in a more like genteel um, version, which I've talked about before. It's not right. quite as folksy. Yeah. And it feels like, I mean, after the good loving, it feels like a little superfluous. <laughs> like, I guess this was yeah, the encore was. Yeah. song. Um, and it's like, I'd, I'd feel kind of ripped off if I was at this show and... You know, okay, I'm gonna stick around for the encore. It's like, oh, don't yeah. ease me in. I think right. like uh, uh, I it's another like common jam band phenomenon where you have like your curfew encores, where maybe they 
Maybe they right. played a little longer than they expected during their sets. And because, you know, you know, a typical band would save some big hit song for the encore, right? Like that they want to send home everybody like we finally they they finally played Freebird in the encore or something like that. Right. Uh, Drop a sugar right, egg in the, there or Uncle Jam John's bands, band. bands like I think often find themselves with like the venue management tapping their watches and saying you, you if you guys go over midnight we're gonna have to pay we're gonna have to charge you an extra ten thousand dollars we can pay everybody overtime so they have to have like a song in their back pocket that they're like no matter how we play this song it's only gonna be four minutes long like we just got to get out of here uh and don't ease me in feels like that was maybe the dead one of the dead's like curfew encore songs uh for the early 80s that makes yeah because they I they like did use theory. it a lot as an encore in the early 80s. Uh, it's, it seems like a strange song to play at the end of the show, but like, I think that's really more like a case of we know what this song is going to do and it's going to get us out of here fast. Right. And they also know like we could do a dozen donies in this song or we could do 20 <laughs> donies in this song. If we need it to be four minutes... You know, we'll add a couple more donies if we need it to be, you know, 315. We'll do, you know, right. a fewer it's flexible. number of donies. Yeah. It'll be fine. All right, so that brings us to the end of Dick's Picks 13. Again, you know, not the most exciting Dick's Picks we're going to do this season, but, you know, I think there's some good moments. And I would say, again, the bonus track, Disc 2, and uh, a good part of Disc 3. I know you were saying Disc 1 is a great furniture assembly (laughs) soundtrack. Keep that in mind. When I go to next next time I go to Ikea and have to put together a shelf... I'm going to put on disc one of Dick's yeah. Picks 13. Um, after this, our next episode, we're going to go back into the yeah. 70s. Dick's Picks 14 uh, from, I guess, November 30th and December 2nd, 1973. This is an epic Dick's Picks. I think it's like four and a half hours long. <laughs> it's like some, it, like literally, it's like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big record. They, they put a ton of music uh, so, on these yeah. records and there's a so lot of So start your homework now. Be, excavated yeah and it it seems like you know as we talked about maybe dick begrudgingly gave the fans a a brent era show but he's jumping right back into his sweet spot 1973 was dick's favorite year at the grateful dead 1974 was close behind so if you take dick's picks 12 and dick's pick 14 you're really getting like straight out of dick's head <laughs> like onto onto cd uh and it's you know it, it's poignant in a way because dick's picks 14 will be the last one that came out while dick lavalo is still alive so oh, yeah man. we're coming to the end oh, of well, uh the dick era of dick's picks which is which is sad well we'll have to do a special there'll be a special tribute to the great dick lavalo in, uh, in our next episode i'm sure we'll yep. do something Maybe we'll drink some whiskey. <laughs> we got some ideas. We'll we'll see what what we can Good announce by the next episode. But yeah, uh, that'll be a fun one to dig into. And man, four and a half hours. I got to start my homework too. So let's wrap this up so I can start listening to Dick's Picks fourteen. All right, well, everyone. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Thirty Six from the Vault. We'll be back with more jams and dead and right. Dick's Picks. Thank you all. Very soon. <laughs> Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. 
It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Listeners, I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs. But what about the stories behind the records that make titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.